Good day, everyone. My name's Ryan, and together with Aaron, we are the RA21 Podcast, a really adult show. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about debt, D-E-B-T, a taboo topic that um, most families don't talk about. And on the show today, we've got Stephanie from Steffi Condo, someone who's like very in touch with property and very suitable to talk about um, debt today. You know, we're talking about like home loans and everything. So Stephanie, how are you today? Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm good today. Yeah. Um, so, so happy to be part of this podcast and I'm, I'm also here to learn. Yeah. Awesome. I like how Steffi is like so modest. <laughs> 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 she's like so what is hi everyone <laughs> but actually yeah, she's yeah. like like my conversations with Steffi right guys like, I always do find that she's quite um she's she she, she knows what she talks she's talking about like, which is quite rare um whenever I talk to anyone who is in property like she like the things that she says right is, is really not something which you hear quite often um from people who just focus on selling you know so I think that's why we we know both me and Ryan reached out to her and asked whether she was actually available you know to do this podcast and uh, we're both very happy to have you today Steffi yeah same same because uh, I've been following your podcast um value from a podcast so I'm super happy to be here be contributing something uh, something of value thank okay, you great yeah, thank awesome you. So before we continue, so I just want to quickly ask, Aaron, how are you doing? Great. Um, actually, I've been doing extremely well. Like the last two weeks. Uh, right now, I'm taking a little bit of a vacation, which is uh, quite good. It's a long time coming since like for the last two and a half years. So I'm enjoying right now. Uh, recording it not at my own home, but uh, but it's fun. Uh, it's great to see how technology can like, you know, I can record anywhere. And uh, I still can get stuff done even though I'm not like uh, at back home. Lah. Yeah, but it's fun. Uh, definitely getting in touch with the grassroots uh, around uh, Southeast Asia. So I'm really like seeing like the impact of the investments that um, I've made lah, on crypto and things like that. So I, I definitely do feel the better consensus when I'm out in the grassroots. So it's been fun. Yeah, yeah I'm happy for you, you to be able to be like, traveling around the world taking a break yeah i'm on the other end uh, as usual i'm just drowning at work yeah, and uh yeah i'm just i've just um as usual i've just moved into a new place uh instead of like buying the new place i decided to just rent the new place uh for now and uh we'll see how it goes yeah yeah are you renting the entire place uh, it's actually just a studio or... a 400 square feet studio yeah uh-huh. I see. That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> a very small, humble place. Huh? Yeah, Nothing extravagant. Well, so long as you don't rent it from Airbnb. Yeah, la. but... <laughs> yeah, the other day we were just talking about like Airbnb prices. Uh, Aaron was like looking around. It was insane those prices Aaron can you talk a little bit about that yeah I was actually like thinking whether I want to like you know go to KL for a little while for one month right so I searched the Airbnb like listings in KL then uh, in KLCC right smack in the middle right the most of the listings I think they kind of think I'm like a rich white man <laughs> because like the listings over there are talking like 30 days uh lease right it's like 5,000 ringgit <laughs> Wow. <laughs> then then I thought, okay, la, maybe, you know, I give them a benefit of doubt. La. Maybe I'm living like in the middle of like the Twin Towers of uh, Malaysia. La. So uh, <laughs> I asked Ryan where, where he's renting and where he's staying, right? So, okay, I searched that, that same exact area, right? Then the result came even more expensive. <laughs> it's a double my rent. <laughs> yeah, double his rent. So it's like, uh, okay, I guess uh, I'll just have to search slowly. La. But I'm pretty sure I can, you know, if I ever go to KL, I can find uh, good, good deals, lah. I'm not not too concerned. About. Right. So, uh, looking at like how all the rentals going up like crazy, I would assume the rental market's getting like, super hot, and nobody's 
going for like uh buying new houses and maybe would that be because of like debt let's get right into the topic the first topic we're gonna talk a little bit about debt why is it a taboo is it a friend or foe is debt bad you know i personally i think that you know debt is kind of like something that's it's a financial instrument that can be um good or bad depending on how you use it but it's so misunderstood and so um misinformed in the sense that people fear the unknown so what do you think um stephanie oh okay so coming from the property industry um it really depends on the person and i realized that uh, from my experience um the wealthier the person is the more they like them. um and those that are um you know at the middle income level or the low Mid, uh, lower middle income level, they are more a bit of uh, afraid of or and different reasons uh, than how the rich or the wealthy uses that. So um, in the property um, sector, you get to use that like um, in the form of mortgage, uh, which is um, what some gurus is uh, using other people's money to build wealth, to buy even more property, not just one, but two, three, and then um, so on and more, you know, uh, whereas, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, I think in the property industry, it's more like a friend if you know how to use it well. Definitely. I but would say like... Yeah, yeah, you'll end up having your property repossessed and have, having to go on to auction property. La. I see. Uh, market. Yeah, yeah. I like how you, you came from a property uh, point of view because in like equities and crypto, right, usually debt comes in the form of leverage, which uh, me and Aaron, we are very, um, very familiar with. And that's why we kind of like don't touch it. But you hear stories about people getting wiped out. You hear people getting margin called and uh, yeah. ended up having to pay like more than three times of whatever they actually initially borrowed of. But um, yeah, Aaron, what do you think about that? You know, coming from the equity side of things. Um, I You see, uh, the thing about, um, I, I think what Stephanie touched on today, because she's from the property sector, right, is that, a lot of people in property tend to use leverage because uh, in most cases, hard property is a pretty big purchase object. La, you know, And in most people's personal finance, right, when you talk about property purchase, uh, it tends to take up about 30 to 40% of your cash flow every month uh, to buy a home. And I think what Steph says is pretty right. And that is if the richer you are and the wealthier you are, right, you tend to actually take on more debt to ensure that um, you can you know, control more assets. You know, rather than um using your own money, because generally when you are wealthier, right, uh, what usually happens is that financial institutions start to open up a uh, very custom and tailor made um products for you, right, in order for you to leverage. So most cases, when you go to a bank, and uh, actually we'll save this for a topic later, uh, to answer the question, uh, I would say that uh, from my understanding, right, and my observation is that in most cases, uh, all greatest fortunes in the world, right, the greatest fortunes in the world have both been made and destroyed using that. So whenever you look at this debt equation, uh, there's always a creditor and there's always a debtor. And there is always a winner at the end of the equation because when you create debt, right, um, there is someone using it and there's someone collecting. The question is, um, in this game of debt, right, if you are the person using debt, can you create more value than whatever the person is charging? That's really the main question if you have the answer. And if the answer is yes, then it becomes a friend. But if the answer is no, if you're struggling paying off like minimum sums, you know, for credit card, you know, you're like stretched to the max, you're owing like credit cards like six months, eight months of your annual income, of your monthly income, right? And then you are just paying bare minimum, then it becomes a very huge uh, fall. Uh, 
then it's very, very hard to get out of. Yeah. It ties back to just very good personal finance, right? Yeah, in pretty much like yeah, pretty much like um I would say that in and we'll talk about this later in the next in the few topics later. And that is um that always comes back to your personal finance. Um, in the beginning stages of your wealth building. But then as you start to mature, you know, once once you start to, you know, get wealthier as what Steph says, right? Then it's no longer about just personal finance. You're actually looking at that, right? As a instrument in personal in finance, right? To actually grow your wealth larger because that allows you to take on more projects, bigger projects. And then you also talk about risk management, like how do you like use that not just in your personal capacity, but in a bigger scale, you see? Right. Yeah, I agree with what you say provided we have the skills and knowledge to to use it right yeah and in in most cases what i've noticed is that uh, wealthy people you know even if let's say they don't have the skills and knowledge they can always find people who know how to do it you know then they'll pay for usually like uh, consultants and you'll just pay for the people who are good at it you know then that's why they build organization uh, then they have a cfo then the cfo will be the one handling all this like financial matters you know usually in in a very huge like um corporation or even like wealthy like you know, the upper echelons of like uh, wealth management, right? Usually the family office, uh, there's always a few people, right? Who are very, very good at looking at financial instruments and that's how they manage the debt. So coming back to the question, is it friend or foe or is it bad? I would say that I've the biggest destructions of wealth that I've seen, right? Tends to come from, you know, people who overextended and over leverage. You know, I mean, we see a lot of examples in the last two weeks in the crypto space through the Terra ecosystem, right? People like borrow a lot of money um, and they really overextended, you know, and then uh, unfortunately, you know, they, uh, nothing to laugh about, la, but they did lose fortunes uh, and it's very, very hard to, you know, come back from, uh, it's very hard to come back from owing large sums of money, I would say. So I think end of the day, um, this is why we want to talk about the topic because we feel that you know um, it needs to be there needs to be a spotlight in knowing how to utilize this uh, instrument. And Ryan is very right in saying that it's a very taboo subject because I think it's not in you know the Southeast Asian culture to actually want to always talk about I owe tang or I owe money, right? Yeah, it's not something you actually bring up to the table during your family gathering or something. <laughs> yeah, and and people and usually people don't educate each other on this. If you know, yeah, it's de- definitely it's it's a very um misinformed sector of like finance. I would say for uh, mm-hmm. like what Stephanie mentions is now the lower and uh, middle income families they tend to fear debt a little more, which I think like um this kind of like financial education on like debt would serve these people well. What do you think about that, Stephanie? Um, um people avoiding debt. Uh, actually, uh, brought consequences to themselves, uh, uh, which is quite not of advantage. Consequences like if you never borrow, or if you never get into debt, how are you able to build a credit profile for self? So that in the future, where you really want to buy a house, um, how are banks gonna evaluate you? How are they gonna assess whether you are a good paymaster or not? So I find that um, excessively avoiding debts are bad as well. But however, having said that, for those first timers, there's actually a lot of tools. Um, available online um, to actually gauge how much debt you you can get or um, to look at your affordability, your eligibility. So you can go to property Google website to look for those calculator where you get to calculate your affordability, your eligibility um, before you really decide to take on the debts. Definitely. There's so many tools online today that can help you decide whether you can or cannot take on debt. And in the end of the day, this just points back to good personal finance, which is what we're going to talk about right now. Um, so 
why is debt important to your personal finance? Maybe Aaron, you would like to start on this a little. Okay, um, I think I've said this before in some of my previous uh, podcasts with uh, the Ringgit to Dollar, just shout out to them. And that is, if you were to look at a balance sheet, right? Let's say you look at your personal finance balance sheet there, you have first your income statement. Then after your income statement, you go on to the next one that you see a balance sheet. And in balance sheet, it's usually divided into two, all right? Assets and liabilities. Okay. The thing is, in terms of wealth building, uh, most people in the personal finance space and most people who do, you know, uh, introduction to finance, they always like to talk about assets. You know, I buy assets, I fund these assets, etc., etc., which is 50% of the equation. The thing is, liabilities, which is pretty much debt, right, constitutes 50% of the other side of the equation. And that is how do you, you know, manage the other side of the equation. So, I've said this before and I will reiterate, if you don't understand and don't how to master um, debt and credit in your life, uh, you are literally giving up 50% of the um, efficiency, right, in your own wealth building. And that is something which, um, you know, I find that as what Steph has mentioned, right, if you are very excessively avoiding the usage of debt and credit in your life, then generally what I've noticed is um, you simply will not be as efficient as you could be if you know how to use it. Because um, I was in that particular category where I tried to avoid that my entire life, you know. And then um, once I started to understand and wrap my head around it, right, I have realized that if you know how to use that to your advantage, it actually creates a lot of opportunities and it allows you to actually make decisions, right, which actually benefits you a lot better, right, if you avoid it. It opens up doors, I would say. Uh, it increases, uh, it gives you a lot of like um, tools uh, which you would not have otherwise had if you don't use it, right? A very good example I can give is, for example, um, okay, if you have like, let's say you have uh, cash 100% to buy a house today, okay? Um, you have like, let's say 100% cash to buy a house today. The question, right, you want to ask is, do you want to use 100% of a house today, bearing in mind, let's say you are 35, right? To buy 100% cash uh, and buy a house today, or would you want to borrow money and buy and keep the cash and use the cash to invest somewhere else. Yeah, we definitely go for the, the, the latter option. Okay, yeah. so, so for some people, right, they will want to do 100%, but uh, let's talk about the why you would want to, let's say, do the second option. The, if you go to the second option, right, generally, you basically come to understanding if you are in your mid-30s and you have the ability to actually pay 100% down for a house. The question is, why do you really need to do that? Because end of the day, you know, in terms of the utility of the home, right? In terms of utility, it really all it does, right? It just gives you a shelter above your head, correct? And if you think about it, there is no real need for you at the age of 35 uh, when you are still working, right? To pay 100% right, uh, of your house off immediately because generally, if you are well insured, you know you have insurance, right? You have life insurance, you have like hospitalization insurance. Even if you are unable to work due to an illness or sickness, right? You can actually risk that through you uh, having an insurance policy. Then they will give you cash and then you can pay off the house, right? And then if you go 100%, then you are locking up your options uh, in this uh, asset. And then you're unable to use the other money, you know, for other opportunities. So, I mean, uh, it comes down to like your personal finance, right? And then why is it important? I would say it's important to understand because if you are able to understand how to utilize that, it gives you a lot of options apart from just uh, making very binary decisions. 
where you just like, okay, I'm just not going to borrow any money. I'm just going to like uh, create assets, which is not too wrong, but I would say that it's quite inefficient. Uh. It's, it, it is quite inefficient. If uh, for And my experience looking at personal balance sheet, right, I would say that people who understand that and can utilize that better, right, I can tell you, uh, they don't move faster by 10 or 20%. They move faster by triple and three and four times the speed than people who don't use that. Yeah, that's really like the, the notion that I got when I read this book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. I think that everyone begins their personal finance journey with this this book. But the 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 fact that he started with like the chart of like an asset and like debt, you know, it was quite um uh, in a sense it's like a mindset shift for me to actually learn how to utilize that and actually embrace that as like part of um my personal finance in that sense. I used to be very apprehensive about using credit cards or even like um, you know taking loans because my experience with loans were, was quite painful, which I will go into a bit later. But um and I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but uh it was it was looking back at it, it was just really bad uh personal finance decisions where I took up a loan where the monthly installment is um more is like a little bit too much for the salary that I was earning back then. And I wasn't actually effectively able to live life. And I had to live like a very frugal life. I had to eat um or, or not eat uh, some days, you know. So it was quite difficult. And uh it I, I became like quite uh apprehensive of that at that point in time. But when I started um to take charge of my personal finances and like started to learn about that it's actually something that, like uh, you mentioned, it's like super dynamic. It's not a binary thing. You, know? you could take that to fund something. And does that, uh, does that uh, the thing that you actually fund is productive in the sense that it, it's an asset that creates uh, value or is it uh, something that, you know, devalues like a car, right? So, um, Stephanie, how uh, what do you think about like um the the interaction between like um debt and like, personal finances? Um, personally, I feel that it's a tool that people can make use of to to get their um to get an asset for themselves. And uh, yeah, because uh, where else can you get a uh, uh, buy a house? I mean, I, it's not that I know of that I can get a ninety percent loan to buy equities to buy stock or crypto, right? So yeah. I feel that, yeah, I, I feel that that's the best choice I have now, lah, at least at this level. Uh, if, I, I mean, for a person, an uh, average person like me, where I'm not rich, I have nothing else as collective. I mean, even we, if we don't talk about property, right, we talk about just vehicles, cars and motorcycles in general. Um, in, in Singapore, I think you can do without a car because your public transport is so um, advanced. But in Malaysia, if you don't have a car, you're basically um, you know, stuck. You can't go anywhere outside of your home, basically. And I think like um, purchases for like a car, while it's like it's an unproductive asset, it devalues. But you know, it's something that Malaysians do appreciate because we drive a lot. Uh, we drive forty kilometers across KL just to get to work sometimes, you know. And it's something that's really needed. And uh, for people like me, average people like me, you know, I feel like this is like a quite a big purchase depending on like what kind of car you're buying. But like you have to fork out at least a good 40, 50,000 ringgit just to buy a car. And in cash, if you're buying it in cash, but like 
where on earth do you find this kind of money in a 27-year-old's pocket? I mean, sure, you know, some people, high flyers, they earn that much, but um, the majority of people, like, we, we can't uh, just poof, there you go, 50K. And that's where the loans come in, you know. It enables people to own things that are really expensive, right, Stephanie? Mm, yes. And actually, like, just now I was digging out, uh, like, uh, for some statistic, like, why people got into bankruptcy. But I actually saw that one of the top two reasons is actually because of high change, um, which is the Kala. So I f- and um, personally, from my experience dealing with buyers, especially those that are having some di- difficulties to get loan, right? Uh, I mean, mortgage, um, it's because of over high, higher purchase commitment. So actually, it's a yes and no for me um, because um, just now I was digging up data about like the latest uh, insolvency statistic for Malaysians, like what are the top few reasons? Actually, the higher purchase uh, for car is uh, the second. The second contributing, second highest contributing factor of uh, insolvency lah. So I feel that uh, personally, from my experience of dealing with most of them, are uh, because of over high commitment on the car repayment every month. So I feel that if possible, especially for young people starting out, you need a car. If you have the choice, go for a cheaper car so that you don't you don't um over commit yourself or you know like reduce your ability to get loan in the future. I love that. You know, that that really hits home, you know, because for me, I was like a 20, 25 year old, 24 year old, uh, when I actually bought like a brand new car. <clears throat> it wasn't cash, so I had to take a take a loan, you know. And uh I wanted to buy a secondhand my V, which was like 30, 40k, and then uh wasn't too expensive, you know. But uh my dad somehow insisted that I just got like a new car, uh, like a new Honda City. So I drive a Honda City full spec somehow. And uh, oh. it was like 70,000. I was, wow, my God. That point of time, I was, I used 33% of my, one third of my salary to service the debt every month. At that point of time, my salary was still kind of low at that point. But it was hell, man, every day. <laughs> wow, that's and, and looking back, I just regretted uh so much but like i'm grateful that i kind of like pull through look and i do enjoy driving the car so there's like could you say like it's really um not worth it i don't know you know but um the only thing i know is that at that point in time i was this close to 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 giving up on the debt and selling the car because it, it was just too too much and too painful for me to actually uh pay pay off the the monthly installments and oh, it goes back it goes back to um uh whether debt is like friend or foe, you know. And it really has um something to do with good personal finance management. You have to actually know how much you're gonna pay and how much of that uh you actually need um to actually sustain your daily life and maybe set a bit of money aside for savings and investments, like that, that kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite surprised, uh Stephanie, you said um the top two reasons why people go bankrupt is because of higher purchase loans. Yes. The first one being personal loan and then the second one is... Well, Aaron, I think we just ticked off the top two reasons why people go bankrupt in Malaysia today. Yeah. <laughs> if for oh. viewers uh, that don't know I have a higher purchase loan and uh, Aaron took up like a personal loan which uh, we'll dive deeper into later yeah. do, you yeah. to, do you want me to chime in on the 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 what what you guys have mentioned just now yeah of course go for it man okay I want to basically just uh, summarize right for the listeners out there essentially when you take that right and then you know you hear stories of Ryan and you hear stories from Steph right end of the day right you have to go back to the 
the, the question now. When you take out that, what are you buying? What are you using the money for? Agree? Because okay. essentially, if you are using this debt, right, to buy an item that can return you usually two things. It usually needs to give you back, right? Number one, more time, right? If you, let's say, run a business, all right, you want to, you know, move your business faster and accelerate the speed of your business growth. You take on that, then you hire people. And you, this person can generate more revenue for you and a higher uh, return than whatever that interest is. Uh, that interest that you're paying, then it might make a good, it might be a wise decision to do so because it get you time. So usually, right, when you buy that, right, you know, uh, and sometimes when you, let's say, for example, you do, uh, you know, you're working, then you're, let's say, you're running a business, then you know your laptop is like dying already. It's like pretty much like need CPR, it's really like dying, right? I say you can use your debt, right, and then buy a, P, a brand new PC and this PC gives you no problems. It runs 10 times faster and you work faster. So in a way, right, you're using that now to give you more time, you know, today, rather than the alternative, right, you save for the next two years just to be able to buy this PC, then you go from there, agree? Yeah, because end of the day, you are buying something, right, to get something today, now, okay, because you know, you know, based on the amount that you're borrowing, right, you can just move faster. So in a way, right, when you borrow money to buy something that, you know, gets you faster, you are buying time. Right? You're getting time uh, today. And then how you utilize that time from then on will determine whether or not is it a good purchase or not. Right. The second thing is that when you are buying something, right, you also need to come to the perspective of whether or not you're getting your money's worth for the amount that you're borrowing. Like what Steph say, you know, higher purchase and um, personal loans, right? I would say that most of the time, uh, um, I... <laughs> I can tell you that sometimes I do get um, Instagram followers asking me uh, whether or not it makes sense uh, to borrow money to buy Rolex watches. What? <laughs> okay, For real? okay. Yeah, you know, I do get, you know, messages like this uh, asking me whether or not is it a wise decision. Okay, look, you know, borrowing money, right, to buy things like that, uh, uh, especially when there's not much utility, right, it really boils back down to whether or not you need it. You know, uh, I've been pretty much, uh, my, my go-to watch has been a G-Shock. Huh? Okay, I've been, I've used it for like 10 years and it never breaks, it never dies. You know, and you know, um, as much as I like watches, right, end of the day, I don't really foresee um, borrowing money to buy stuff like that. Uh, they return me um, more money and more time as compared to if I buy assets. So now I flip the equation now, right, and instead of using the money to buy a car, which is 70,000 ringgit, right, if you had borrowed that money, and let's say, what's your interest rate? Your interest rate is about how many, how many percent? Five, six percent? 2.4. Okay, your interest rate on the account is 2.4%. What if you use that money, right, at 2.4% uh, at a payback of 10 years, uh, and they allow you to buy Tesla? You mean a Tesla car or a Tesla stock? Tesla stock. See, that's a huge difference. But yeah, you know, that, that, if that, Tesla that, stock is going to go 10x, and my interest rate is going to be 2.5 or uh, 2.4 for the next uh, foreseeable future, like how many years? Five years? You know, yeah. uh, it's really no-brainer, you know? Yeah, so I mean, that comes down to the perspective of what, what Stephanie was trying to say, right? Because like in, in many cases, right, when you take on debt to buy, right, and she says that there's no other uh, asset that allows you to borrow 90%, right? It's because um, in many ways, right, banks are not stupid, all right? They will only lend you money, uh, let's say, and usually allow you to borrow 90, 95, and in some cases, 100%, right, of the, of the asset that you're called that you're wanting to buy is because they, they know that there is collateral value. So they allow you to borrow, you know. And I think you have to understand that when you take on debt, right, you really have to answer the, the fundamental question, which is, what are you buying? Okay, if you're buying things, you know, that really doesn't increase your efficiency at work, doesn't increase your 
um, time, you know, doesn't increase your speed at doing things, right? Then that is that, right? Which is what I call like, um, you know, fun, fun play money debt. And I don't really think that, you know, you should see it as something which um, that will have a net you know, positive value for you. Because end of the day, you know, look, guys, you have to pay it off. La. End of the day, you have to pay off that because, um, you know, the, the, the way the rule that that works is that, you know, end of the day, you know, that thing is not really yours until you pay it off. You, you still otang people, end of the day. So um, if you can make it work for you, the, the formula is if you borrow money, right, just make sure that whatever you're borrowing the money to buy it for, it can work for you and then you can pay it off the debt. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I would okay. say if you want to go for like a um, home or car, you know, or anything that really um, you, you want to take a debt on, make sure that the utility actually serves you well. Like for cars, right, the, the only utility is to bring you from point A to point B comfortably. And and as long as the car serves the that uh, satisfy the, the the utility which is which is going from point A to point B, then um you know you don't need to break your bank just to go buy like a new a brand new Tesla Model 3 or a BMW Mercedes, you know. Uh yeah, a nice little proton would do. So, you know, uh, it all ties back down to like good uh, personal finance and understanding what you are using your debt for. All right. Yeah. So uh, we've covered like why do we actually use debt? We started with like why and why is it actually important for people to understand and, uh, and, and utilize it properly. So let's talk a little bit about what are the kinds of debts that we have on the market, you know. We always hear about people talking about like um, higher purchase loans or like personal loans, home loans. Uh, in the equity space, you know, we've got like the margins, we got uh, leverage in crypto. But is there like a very definitive, um, I would say, categorization for all these debts, Aaron? Uh, yes, I would say that um, what Steph mentioned, okay, that I would say that there's two main types of debt. Lah, okay, and then basically the, the, the rest of the categories are just subsets of them. Okay, the first type of debt is what you call a secured uh, loan, meaning you put out collateral and then the bank you the bank lends you the money based on the market value of the the collateral they're putting up. Mortgages fall under this category because uh usually when you want to buy a house uh wherever country you're in, right, the bank will come in, they'll assess the capital uh, market cap of the of the of the mortgage, right? And then they will allow you to borrow as much as 90% of the asset or sometimes 100%. And whether or not you can qualify for the home loan also depends on the second variable, which is your income and your credit history, right? So this income and credit history falls under the category of unsecured loan, meaning, and these are where, right, things like personal loan, you know, uh, personal loan, credit card, you know, then you're talking about all this, like, um, you know, things which don't really have a collateral, right? But basically uh, comes from a premise, right? Where it depends on um, your promise to pay the bank based on your, you know, um, established income. So things like personal loan, uh, which is why when Steph, you mentioned that the two biggest, like uh, uh, default and bankruptcies often come from personal loans, right? It's because usually in personal loans, it is an unsecured loan and there is not, there's no collateral. So usually, right, when you want to borrow money for things like personal loan, uh, your interest rate is usually the higher high end of the spectrum because towards the bank, right, there is higher risk for them. Because assuming, let's say a person were to default, right, because they have no collateral, unlike the house, they cannot just foreclose the house. They cannot just force sell the house and they cannot take the house back. 
So they basically have to like just lawyer up and depending on how much you owe, right, they'll come and chase chase after you. And in order to to make sure that they don't actually like overcommit their 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 personal loan to most people, they each bank usually have a limit as to how much they can lend. So usually the limit is anywhere between three to four months. All right. So this is uh, basically unsecured and secured. Now, if you go down to the secured loan parts, which um basically uh, a lot of people also get into trouble in, right? It's basically because these loans, right, they are also, in most cases, most cases are mark-to-market loans, okay? Meaning, for example, let's say you were to buy a house at, uh, let's say you buy a house, uh, let's say $1, mil- $1 million, uh, you borrow 90%, 900000 Assuming, let's say, something like an 0809 crash were to happen, okay? Um, then, suddenly, the valuation of a house, right, go from $1 million overnight, right? Market value drop to half a million. You still owe the bank 900000 uh, The 900000 don't go away, all right? The bank will call you and say, okay, uh, because the market value of this flat has dropped from $1 million to 500000 the maximum that we can lend is nine hundred k. okay? Can you please cough out another 450000 If not, we'll sell the house and then we'll basically get a lawyer and basically claim on your asset, in a personal capacity. Okay, now you think of this situation is bad, right? All right, now multiply this number of purchases by five to six times. All right, because this is exactly right what happened in the 08 and 09 crisis where many people, right, they didn't, they bought houses, right, at 1 million and overnight, the houses, right, some of them own five to six, right? Overnight, uh, the houses dropped by 50%. Oh, and they God. were told, right, to cough up two to three million dollars instantly overnight uh, or the bank will force sell everything and then they will just come after them and declare them bankrupt. My God, it's insane. But that's really over leverage, isn't it? It is. I would say that it is uh, mark to market. Like, I would say that you, from this story, you have to understand, right? It doesn't mean that you go secured loan, right? It doesn't mean that if you take a mark, uh, secured loan, it means it's, uh, it is risk-free. Because people forget, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, even if it's a house, uh, sometimes houses also can, uh, the valuation can drop also. It's not a never, you know, you know that's what a lot of people forgot in 05, 06, right? They always thought that houses will never drop, houses will never default. Then 09, 08 happened, right? You know, and then overnight, the houses dropped by 50%. And uh, I have no, I, I have, okay, I have people, right, in, in some of my friends are in Singapore who are that old and they went through that 0809. I have a few of them, right, during that time, uh, the banks literally called them up uh, and because they own like three to four houses, right, okay, the bank called them up and basically asked them to top up their margin because they got margin caught on their homes in Singapore. Wow. Okay, and wow. that, that was a real thing that happened. Okay, in 0809, I'm not. I'm pretty sure it also happened in Malaysia. Okay, because if America happened, Singapore happened. I'm pretty sure uh, Malaysia happened as well. So when you talk about debt, right, just understand that where what whatever kinds of debt are marked to market, credit card, interest free loan, cash flow loan. Understand the fundamental principle is that when you own asset until you pay off the debt, that's a fundamental uh, principle that you need to understand. Right, so that is why it's so important that when you take on loans, right, and when you utilize this asset, you know, as what Steph say, um, make sure that when you buy something, right, uh, make sure you do your due diligence before you jump on. Yeah. Steph, what do you think is prudent for a a person who is buying property? You know, uh, first time buyer, you know, like future buyers, uh, what should they look out for uh, when they buy a property? And also like what is a good, some good guidelines for them to, you know, in terms of debt financing? Yeah, actually there's, I, I, find, I find that there's quite a few traps la, in the property market, especially for first time home buyer. Um, but um, uh, as, as I said, it's really important to know your eligibility and your affordability and if possible to borrow below your affordability instead of... Um, on your affordable, 
affordability level or above. Because I I find that yeah, while interest rate was low, but now it has increased and may not stop there. It's important to uh, really factor in the possibility of an increase in interest rate and whether when that happens, you can still afford it. And another property trap that I find really that is still ongoing, even um, being brought up by the House Buyer Association in Malaysia, that um, you know there's this ongoing cashback that is being offered, um, so-called to help uh, you know, um, um, stress on buying the first home where they ha- they can zero down. They don't have to come up with down payment to buy a property, but be careful of that because you are in a way actually paying for that cashback because a lot of people get into more debts because of cashback being offered by developer uh, for developer who want to clear off their units. Uh, so I think that's a property trap that people need to know uh, and which I see that a lot of people buy property for the reason of they need a house or they want to invest. But instead, they want to get on more debt to clear their bad debts. And in a way, it's like that <sighs> debt consolidation as well, of which I'm sure, Aaron, you are able to show as well on that. Uh, the, that console. Oh, that's insane. Eh. Ah. That's very dangerous. Eh. Yes, it is. Well, that, that's like, like, that's like huge red flag. Like, like uh, when you say that people don't have to like come out money down uh, and then buy a house, right? That really screams like, like 0809 crisis because in, in, back in those days, uh, really people like, they don't even have to show credit history, you know, to borrow money to buy a house. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they don't even have to show that they have income. You can be unemployed and still buy a house, you know, because of the, the, political regulation there. So so you're saying, uh, Steph, that people right now, they, they buy property because um, they don't even need a place to stay. They don't even need a place to like invest, but they're buying it because they want to do debt consolidation. Yeah, that's one of the reasons as well as for the cashback because they need the cash to like, let's say for capital of business and things like that. Lah. But that is very um, something to be uh, to be careful of, lah, I find. Because uh, those that are you don't have the personal finance knowledge then be lured into that. So I think the intention that you are getting the house is very important. Actually, out of curiosity, Steph, when you say some people are doing this, uh, like, uh, is this something which is um, very uncommon like in terms of percentage-wise? Like um, like less than 1% of people actually do this or is actually quite a um, scary amount? Uh, I would say it's getting more and more popular, especially with the case. But it's not very often talked about because actually it's quite a grey area. Actually, um, banks are trying to control it, but um, I find that you know banks also have their own KPI, like how much they are able to 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 sell out, right? So yeah. I think yeah. So I think it's a supply and demand thing. The the reason people can get, uh into all this is because they see the potential of making profit, like as a way to get more money. But um, little do they know they actually have to pay back. One. This cashback is not free. On SPA, on the sales purchase agreement, you are buying something, let's say, 1 million, whereas the real value is only, let's say, 600,000. So you're actually getting more debt, which is like 400K more debt than you actually wow. need. Yeah. So, and and in a way, you are kind of like manipulating the bank or the, the system la, in a way. La. So I think that's one thing to for that is not really being talked about quite a lot. La. Oh and and this, is, this is all uh, quite... Um, new in the sense that it's still in the grey area. It's rather unregulated, and it's also just a very new marketing agenda from the um the property scene, the developers and all. Actually, it's not that new. Uh, when I first entered the property industry, it has already been happening. In fact, it's more like a closed deal, meaning 
good deal. I actually, because, I think I know what. Yeah, I, it's I, I, Actually, this this thing, uh, uh <laughs> it, here it, it breaks my heart to hear this because like usually when things like this happen, right, the one who really suffers are those people who want to generally buy a house, right? You know, for yes. you know to live in, right? And then because of this, right, the houses are actually artificially inflated. Yes. Yes. Very true. You know, because like, because what Steph is essentially saying, right, is that uh, people are, are basically borrow money from a bank due to inflated property prices, you know, and then they take the cash back that's given to them, right? And then essentially you have a artificially inflated um, uh, property price, lah, which is why just now, you know, before the podcast uh, started, right, I say that it's usually a sign of a property bubble, right? When you need three generations of money uh, just to buy your first home, uh, at the age of t- in your 20s is usually a sign of a property bubble uh, because like um, when you include like interest rate increments then you see stuff like that right no, I, you know the, the question is right when all of this suddenly stops right you know like what happened in Japan uh, you know the property prices were increasing like nobody's business right essentially when the bank of Japan stepped in right and then they pulled the rug you know a lot of people right committed suicide a lot of people because um, basically they really uh, went up to their necks uh, to, and they couldn't afford to pay the debt. Uh. So I think, actually, Steph, thanks for, for sharing this because I think this is something which uh, we don't hear about very often. Um, you know, in a lot of mar- the, the, I think the, the main issue that um, I have whenever I look at uh, property marketing, right, is that there are many things like that which occurs, right, which is not usually uh, talked about, you know, and this is, I guess, one of the large contributing factor, right, as to why property prices have been um, high, la, I would say, uh, relative to a person's income. Yeah, it kind of makes sense now that, like, property prices in Malaysia, I'm not sure about other countries, but in Malaysia, it has been going up very aggressively, even though, even though like, in KL, right, we know that there is a massive oversupply of property. Like there's just been more and more townships being built around the Klang Valley area. And but then somehow these new developments, they have the the price, the launching prices just keeps going up and up and up like nobody's business. Now, now you mentioned this, this is this makes total sense because it's being inflated artificially in that sense. And it sounds like a Ponzi scheme to me. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, okay, I guess like I guess uh, um, a question to you, Steph. I just wonder, right? Yeah. Um, in terms, I guess the best way for me to come from to, to look at this, right, and is to basically ask the fundamental question, uh, and that is, um, uh, in your area that this is happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, is it how is the resale market doing? The resale market, the uh, meaning the secondary market. Yes, uh, relative to the the brand new launches, how is the resale market doing? Are people f- having trouble trying to sell their homes? Actually, the sub-sell market, which is the secondary market, is doing pretty well um, because there's still value there. Uh, okay, I guess the, the, the better question, right, is um, in terms of pricing, right, like um, generally, do you feel that the resale market tends to be more conservatively priced compared to new launches? Uh, I would say it's a 50-50. There, mm-hmm. there are some really good value in sub-sell still, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but there are also sellers that uh, trying to take opportunity of the market, especially if the area is in high demand, to also jack up their price. I think it's it's normal. Uh. We all want to sell as high as possible, but there are also desperate sellers who want to sell off um, to, liquidate, to liquidate the asset. For but I still find that there's more value in sell because you can negotiate for the price. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Whereas if you go for a new launch, you cannot negotiate the price. Mm. Yes. Yes. Unless... 
yeah, unless the yeah, unless the developer is desperate enough, uh, is really desperate to clear off the stock lah. Because the longer they hold the stock, it also uh, uh incurring cost to themselves. Yes, that's good. Well, guys, that is some insight from Stephanie. <laughs> uh, I always like to ask this type of questions because I find that it does give you some insight towards like the the property market there. Um, okay, so we have touched on kinds of that. Okay, I, I would say that we have spoken a lot about like uh, let's say um basically you know personal loans as well as mortgage loans, right? And then now I want to focus the conversation on debt structures, and that is basically talking about things like uh, how do you best structure debt, right, to make it work for you. Right. So, for example, like Ryan, you mentioned that you purchase a car, right, which is a debt structure that you borrowed at a two point something percent over a ten year period versus a property where you borrow. Um, actually, Stephanie, when you uh buy a property using debt, right, in Malaysia, how common is it for people to borrow thirty five years? Actually, it's quite common for people to stretch as long as possible, especially <laughs> for those under thirty five. Uh huh. Yeah. So, uh, so you can stretch it until you're seventy years old. So as long as you are below thirty five years old, you can stretch. You can choose to uh get until thirty five long tenure. But doesn't that mean the person who's thirty five has to work until he's seventy before he can retire? But the retirement age is at sixty officially. <laughs> okay, I would say that you know for you know I see this all the time that people like try to borrow as much length as possible, like thirty five years, right? Then assuming let's say you borrow, uh, Singapore. Very rare you hear people borrow thirty five years lah. Quite rare lah because the industry standard is none other than our our HDB right, which is our, is our public housing uh um and our housing public um the maximum they allow people to borrow is twenty five years. We we never go above twenty five. Uh, so usually we just borrow twenty five years. After that, you know, uh, we we sort of retire. Um, from there we don't have to worry about paying rent. So I would say that okay, coming back to debt structures, right? Um, the way I see it when it comes to like uh you know, the biggest debt instrument is basically like property, right? The, the the why people like to buy property, right? And then they take like, let's say 25, 35 years. Uh, essentially, if you think about it, right? It's basically just a hedge, you know, where they basically just uh, pay forward, you know, their entire uh, lifetime income of rent. So for example, if you, let's say you start at 25, right? Then assuming the average uh, age of a person, you know, passes away for a man is around 85. So 60, 60, you'll probably live 60 years, right? And then if you buy a house, okay, and the intention of this house is to stay, and if you take a loan for 25 years, at the end of 25 years, you don't have to worry about rent anymore because your house is fully paid, right? So in this particular debt structure, right, when you talk about it, right, in, in essentially what you're doing is that you're just uh, making sure that, you know, you're having a sort of an insurance policy, you know, where in this 25 years, you fully pay off your house. So if you start at 25, at the age of 50, your house is fully paid and you don't have to worry about rental in your retirement age, right? Because I think it is a, a key concern, right, for some people, right, that, you know, even though we say that, you know, it's better to invest in the equity market, you know, it's better to invest in, let's say, like a high conviction stock, right? I think the fact of the matter is, right, for most people, I would say 99% of the people, they don't really have that discipline to continually invest um, into uh, asset class, you know, that is extremely volatile because um, history has shown over and over again, uh, not just amongst like, uh, you know, not just amongst like, you know, this this Instagram uh, personal finance, which we started in the last three years, right? But throughout my history of doing personal finance, uh, that every single time there is a market crash, all right, people froze, uh, people tend to freeze up and they don't buy and they don't continue to DCA. Whereas if you buy a house, let's say, and, and to, to counter the argument that the house dropped 50%, right? I think end of the day, it comes back down to the mixture when you buy, right? It is um, of, you just need to make sure that the house that you're buying uh, is of uh, fair value. 
as what Stephanie said, the resale market is still quite like a... Actually, what, what Steph says has been saying this in this podcast, right, is when you buy something, right, just make sure that, you know, it's value value. Like if you buy a car, you don't really need to buy a brand new car, you can just buy a second hand. Just make sure that, you know, you bolster your personal finance better before you can, you know, get a better one. Just get from point A to point B. Then when you buy a house, right, just make sure that you don't overpay for the house, right? Because if yes. you are struggling, like freaking like, you know, if you buy a house, right, and then your income is like, let's say 10,000 ringgit. If you're paying 8,000 ringgit to mortgage every month, you're over leveraged. Yeah. Okay, because like 80% of your cash flow every month to pay off your house. Uh, and then you left 2,000 ringgit, right? I think you're just going to eat grass for, yeah. for 35 years, right? So, so, so that is not going to work, you know? And then usually that also means that the house that you're buying is probably overvalued. Lah. Because um, just, just when I did a quick check with Ryan on the Airbnb prices, right? And he tells me like 5,000 ringgit is like on an extreme expensive end of things in KL, in KL, right? It kind of tells me that these people are quite desperate to make sure that someone else is paying off their overinflated uh, property prices and their, their mortgage rates. Lah. Because like, I think 5,000 ringgit, I think like, you know, in, in terms of like mortgage payments, uh, uh, property value, I think needs to be at least like close to 1 mil for it to justify that price. You know, in, if you stretch it out for 25, let alone 35 years, right? So um, when you talk about that, that structures, right, I would say that you need to find a structure that works for your particular case. Okay, I'll give a very uh, two extreme ends of the example. The first extreme end of the example is, let's say, for example, you want to buy a laptop. Okay, for me, I give use my personal example. I want to buy a MacBook because I'm now traveling and I want to be able to work remotely. Okay, but then I have two options. The first option, right, is I were to buy a MacBook. I pay 100% cash, which I can afford. The second way is that I basically just use it as a rental piece and basically just take a personal loan, you know, and then pay over 24 months. So which option would I prefer? Obviously, I prefer the second option because assuming the, the down payment for a MacBook is let's say about 5,000 ringgit, right? Or a 1,400 sing, right? And then um, the other option is I take an interest-free loan, which I can pay off in two years. Basically, there's no interest and I basically just pay, uh, I think it's $40, uh, is it? I think 40 or $50 a month for two years. So basically, after two years, I pay off the thing completely. And then the existing uh, cash flow every month, I just invest in the S&P 500 or invest in Bitcoin, invest in Ethereum. So this structure makes sense for me because basically it feels like I'm paying a Netflix subscription to enjoy um, the utility of the asset today, which I know I can pay off. Does that yeah, this exactly happened to myself also. There was one time like uh, way before the GPU shortage, right? I was actually building a computer and I've got all the parts down already. It's just that one GPU and I bought it just a few weeks too late, you know? And then the seller decided to cancel on me thanks to uh, Jensen from NVIDIA raising all the card prices. Shout out to NVIDIA. Fuck you, Jensen. But uh, anyway, I hate them with a passion. But um, what happened was the, the seller canceled my GPU. So I, I was left with a computer and I cannot find a GPU anywhere at that point in time. So I was mm. forced to actually sell the computer. But the, this is the nice part. Um, I sold it for a profit. And then also another thing was I actually funded the computer with my credit card. So uh, after I sold the uh, computer for a profit, right, I yeeted everything into a, I ate everything into Palantir, which is not the best uh, asset that you can do with. But uh, I did. But uh, <laughs> Uh, but still, uh, with Palantir going down by like how many percent is that? It's like it went from like twenty four my buying price to eight eight dollars. But I still did not get margin call. So I would say like this um debt structure actually it works for me. Uh, and and uh, it's relatively safe leverage on on the on the um equity side of things. 
Okay, now uh, let's let's move on to uh, the the other side of the structure, right? Okay, so just now you mentioned, right, um, Ryan, about your modem um, uh, arbitrage, right? Basically, you um, just take uh, you paid off. You basically took a credit card loan, is it, or a personal yeah, loan? That's right, a credit card loan. Yeah. So, on the so this yeah. so so this credit card loan, uh, is it interest free? Yeah. Yeah. So you had to pay off in two years. Yeah. Okay, no, it's so, not two years, but like it's twelve months, but still, it it's a quite a small amount. Uh, three mm. four thousand. And uh, divide it, divide it up by like twelve. You know, you get like, I'd say like yeah. maybe six, seven hundred a month. That's not too yeah. bad. Yeah, I guess. I guess like basically, it just goes back down to what are you buying with this like uh debt, right? Because it's like for example, usually credit cards they sometimes they can offer you twelve months, twenty four months to pay off something. Like you know, this particular uh mic I'm recording in, right? I actually like took a twenty four month interest repayment because I don't want to pay one lump sum. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, uh, actually, like, I actually took a twenty-four month interest free loan to pay this because, like, I, I don't, I, I mean, I can pay lump sum, you know, but I just don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I, want to I, I just want them to wait. I just wanted to earn, you know. I would just want them to like earn the money, you know, uh, on a monthly basis, lah. So in a way, if you think about it, right? If let's say your outlay is like, you know, like, you know, thirty, forty, like, sing, you know, a month, it kind of feels like a Netflix subscription, you know, where you're you're yeah. paying off like money. So I guess like you know that's one way to like structure like small wins, lah. You know, but of course the other end of the structure spectrum right where you're talking about debt structures uh, which are larger in size you know most notably I think for most people is their mortgages right um, the, the key tenants which we mentioned is that make sure that when you buy a property it is fairly valued number one and number two well, the amount of loan that you take uh, shouldn't be so drastic and so dramatic right that basically it eats up uh, even your own like makan fun uh. You know, because if you like, like, like Ryan mentioned, uh, his car loan is like 33%. Uh, then if let's say he take another, like, you know, um, take another loan for the house, uh, let's say it takes another like 30%. But 10, but usually banks will not allow you to draw down that much. Uh. Usually banks, they have like guidelines. You know, they look at your income, look at your total debt that you have. Uh. And in Singapore, we have this thing called total debt servicing ratio. You know, meaning that the amount of debt and cash flow you can take every month, right? Uh, right now, it's regulated that you cannot exceed, I think... 40 or 50% of your cash flow uh, monthly income. You know, Singapore, um, we have those guidelines. So so it's like when you go and take a loan from a bank in Singapore, right? they will basically just cross-reference uh, every single loan that you have in your personal wow, capacity. And if it exceeds like 40 or 50%, uh, the bank is legally not allowed to lend you more money. That's a very good guideline there that protects the people from yeah. overextending. It, I mean, it serves two purposes. Uh, the first purpose is that it protects the people. And second purpose it does, right, is that it completely uh, cuts off the legs uh, for, for people to basically over-inflate the asset prices. Because the banks who are not legally allowed to lend more money than uh than than what is um what is reasonable for a person uh. you get what I mean so yeah. um I, I'm not sure how Malaysia does this but from the from what Stephanie has mentioned I don't think this is very like much spoken about uh. so that's why you know every time Malaysians say that you know uh, Singaporeans are quite blessed because our government is uh, you know they take care of us in a, in a way it's, I, 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 won't, I don't want to dispute that uh. I will say that uh, the Singapore government is quite good in making sure that you know uh, the systems are here to make sure that it safeguards the people right because 90% of our population here actually live in public housing which is quite affordable because uh, usually public housing right in Singapore brand new right it ranges anywhere between 20 to 30% of our cash inflow it never it rarely very rarely uh, exceeds that very rare 20 to 30% yeah so, so for example like you know why a lot of Singaporeans they buy houses in Singapore you know why? Uh, the the monthly installment is less than the rental, right? Yes, correct, completely. Yeah, this this is the main reason why. Because when you do actually the numbers in Singapore, right, it is simply cheaper to buy a public housing than to actually rent out in Singapore. And you're talking about a price differential of about thirty percent. So, for example, if let's say I want to rent a studio apartment in Singapore, right, one month is about let's say one thousand eight. 
1,008 about for a four, 500 square foot apartment, right? A studio apartment in Singapore. You get your privacy, everything. But if I were to buy a public housing, uh, let's say I get a four room, right? That 1,008 uh, is what I pay for a place, right? That is about 900 to 1,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah, so Singaporeans, you know, uh, as much as we like to complain a lot, uh, our government very good one. Uh, I would say like, uh, <laughs> I mean, after speaking to, you know, many people across Southeast Asia, uh, I would say that our government is quite uh, up there one, uh, in terms of like, they, they make sure that... Um, uh, our basic necessities are taken care of. Lah. So there's nothing to complain. Even you can complain about the 99-year lease, you know, being a lease. But end of the day, I would say that uh, I would say that housing is affordable in Singapore. Uh, that, that's a bit funny to say, lah, but uh, that, that's kind of true. In, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I would say that housing in Singapore is affordable. Uh, and relatively. It's, it's, it's relatively. relatively. And, and, and if there's any case in Singapore, right, you know, the housing ever goes out of whack, right, the government usually steps in uh, to make sure that it doesn't increase too much, like what they've did like in the last uh, year or so. So uh, coming back, you know, in countries that don't really have like, uh, okay, not to, not to shit on, not to shit on Malaysia or any other Southeast Asian countries, uh, so I don't want politicians come knocking on my door. You don't have all these safeguards in wherever you are, right? Um, I think end of the day, it comes back down to good personal finance as what Steph has mentioned as that is before you buy, right? Just make sure that you look for value. Yeah, it has to serve the purposes and the utilities you're going for the item, especially when you're buying a huge purchase like a home where there's really um, no way that you can afford the house with 100% cash and you have to take on a huge amount of debt. And yeah. I guess we can segue to the next um, uh, question here, which is the next topic here, which is the role of debt in purchasing homes. So maybe, Stephanie, you'd like to talk a little bit about that? I would say like, uh, I think our main question we have, right, Steph, is that um, in terms of home purchases, right, um, in your experience, right, the role of that, uh, how big, how much of a role does it play uh, in most people that you see in your line of work? Like, like in terms, because like in terms of like things like equity and investing, right, it's very clear that most people who invest in stocks and crypto, right, we don't actually use leverage. Whereas in home purchases, uh, I would imagine, right, that most people um, take on loans. Um, so in your experience, right, uh, how big of a role uh, does that play when it comes to home purchases? Uh, from my experience, I would say it's very big. Um, of course, as um, you know, for a property developer, they would love having cash buyer. But the reality is um, most people, I would say 99.5% of people really use uh, loan, really need to have mortgage to buy, to buy their house. So that means like for majority of the people, right, without a mortgage, they cannot buy a house or a home. Yes, or even if they have the money to do so, they they don't want to do that. And as especially, I mean, this is kind of like insider thing, lah. especially for those that really want to cash buy, right? That's a reason why they want to cash buy. And it's usually, it's uh, 50%. Lah. It's not because of a very good reason, like maybe like, you know, money laundering and stuff like that. Lah. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. I mean, where all that cash is coming from, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, oh, so yeah. in that sense, right, the, the, the banks are like, super important because like everyone will, will flock to their banks and, and, and get like a loan just to buy a house and therefore um you know uh like all the interest rates and everything it's like super important in that sense. Now yes. I would say like Steph, I guess the question is right, uh how would you like advise right a person, you know, first time buyer, you know, let's say I'm fresh in the market, I want to buy a house in, you know, let's say 
you know, how, how what what is the, I would say, right, as a buyer, right, let's say there's two type of buyers. The first type of buyer, uh, how would you advise the first type of buyer to go on that, right, when it comes to buying a house for family purposes, meaning I want to have a family. And then the second type of buyer is I want to buy a house, right, for investment purposes. Mm. How would you at best advise, right, these two group of buyers and what are the differences? Actually, for those that are buying for homestay, of course, you want to reduce paying as much interest as possible. So I think one of the options for them is to, uh, you know, to consider a full flexi loan where, you know, you get to put more money into your current account to save on the interest paid in the long run as well. Uh. So you get to pay, pay down your debt uh, in a shorter amount of time and also uh, lesser interest paid to the bank. As for investor, I think it's more different where you want to... Um, really maximize that, which is like maybe uh, you want to have a longer loan term so that you can reduce the amount of installment you pay per month, especially for those that are renting out. Uh, and then you want, because you want to get more cash flow, meaning lesser money goes to the installment, meaning more money coming into your own pocket. Um, yeah, I think that's the difference. Uh. But like so, going back to the investor group, right? There's, mm. there's also usually two types of uh, uh, investors for within the property market. One would be going for the capital appreciation of the home. The other one would be more going for like a rental or an Airbnb model kind of like, uh, you know, uh, yield investors. Is, yeah. that, is that true? And uh, wow. if uh, how would you advise like these two sub different category kind of investors mm. in taking on their debt? I think same goes to any sort of in any type of investor. Uh, most investors want to reduce their monthly installment as much as possible. And um, even for capital appreciation, like let's say if this person aim to resell it after say 10 or 15 years, um, the person, because with lower cost per month, you get to sell it off. You get to own the house and then sell it off for a profit. So it it really depends. Unless the person really want to save on the lending cost, then the person may want to consider also paying lower interest as possible, like um, maybe opting for more installment payment per month or um, yeah, or a longer, uh, oh, sorry, or a shorter loan period. So it really depends ultimately what the person wants, uh, but most mostly want to save on the cost uh, per month. So, you know, like mostly will opt for a, a longer period and any way to lower down or minimize the installment per month. So that stems from the interest rate of the bank, right? Yes. Does it? Yeah. Interest rate of the bank, the terms that the bank give you. So for example, if let's say, actually I did a, a quick tabulation uh, because I think we were having a conversation about how the OPR in Malaysia is increasing, not just in Malaysia, in Singapore as well, because I just got a friendly reminder from my bank that they are going to increase the rates, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's quite sad, <laughs> but oh well. Uh, but thankfully, uh, my, my, my terms are fixed, uh, so I don't really care. Uh, but I, I would say that like, you know, in Malaysia, right, like Stephanie, I, I think you mentioned a very critical component when it comes to like debt, uh, the rules of debt. And that is when you take on debt, right, and then you're focused on like the, the monthly like uh, payments, right, that interest rates does play a very big role in terms of your net um, investment return, right? Because um, let's say uh, I actually did a, a number quite quickly uh, of uh, every single 1% increment right of your of your interest rates right actually does sort of impact uh cash flow outlay uh, it increases by about 10 to 15% um 
you know, in the next uh, restructuring. So for example, if let's say your rental, right, let's say your mortgage, uh, you're paying like 2,000 ringgit, then if the interest rate goes up by 1%, uh, the next time it resets, uh, it is going to go up by about 250 ringgit per month, mm. you know, and then if let's say it increases by 3%, there's additional 750 ringgit a month, which is close to a 30% uh, cash outlay, right? So, um, coming back to this, right, I, I, you see, the, the, the main the main challenge I always have when it comes to property, right, is that a lot of people say that, you know, renting is a good uh, way to play it. But uh, in terms of practice, right, Stephanie, do you feel that um, this there's still value at in this particular way to invest money in property? Um, you know, a lot of people, they say that it's good to buy a house, then you rent them for rental income, right? But in your um experience right in terms of practice uh, does this still um does this still work in practice like meaning i buy a property you know i take out a loan right and then let's say uh, i borrow 90 percent you know um if i rent out the the place uh, do you still think that you know um it's a wise decision to play the rental game I is think, it still profitable yeah i think currently for now it, it really depends on the property that you select i think it's very important because um like I mentioned in my previous pause, right? Um, you can't just go into a show unit and then choose a property and then you you wait for it to be rented out. You wait for someone to come and rent it. I think it um investor need to take a more prudent approach, which is to look at several indicators um before selecting and confirming to buy that property. Um to ensure there's really people, there's really demand for the rent in the area and also to be able to fetch the desired rental income that they want and also be willing to also put in the work. So from my experience, because I'm a I also have a unit and for rent as well. And um doing that I really learned that you know it's not as good as people say la, and it's not as easy also. I also do get worried. What if this year, uh, by the time the tenancy um, ends, will the tenant renew again? So I have that kind of worries. And will the tenant spoil my furniture and stuff like that? And then for the next new tenant, will I still be able to rent out at this price? Because in the neighborhood, there's so many people also renting out the unit. So I think there's several indicators that can be used as guidelines to reduce that that kind of risk, that's that sort of uncertainty, especially for investor or people uh get uh wanting to get into the property investment space. Uh. When you I say when you say data and um like all this information and statistics, right? Mm. Um I met I, I saw like one of on your post, uh there was a specific website for Malaysia that you actually go to for all these statistics, right? Ah uh, yes, it's uh NAPIC, uh the NAPIC uh website. But there's also JPPH. All these are on property information. So JPPH is like Valuation and Property Service Department. And the NAPIC is also like the National uh, Association for Property Information Center, uh, something like that, where you get to have a comprehensive overview of the property. How is the property sector really doing? And they even dive into like specific states. Although sadly, it's not like by area because there used to be bricks.my which is uh, now being acquired by Property Guru. So Property Guru, from time to time, they also do share valuable insights as well on how's the property property market doing so that, you know, uh, property buyer or investor can make a better informed decision as well. So, so you see, uh, guys, this is why we have Stephanie like on the show uh, because like... <laughs> 
Like seriously, uh, to find a person, right, who's like willing, willing uh, to share all of whatever she says, so hard uh, to find it inside the marketing, uh, the, the flood of marketing when it comes to like property selling. You know, because every single time, right, they always tell us like, ah, oh, you can buy this right now, you know, it's brand new, etc. It's very good. You know, they always like sell you a very rosy picture, you know, but I, I think in practice, what Steph has um, mentioned, right, is that it's not as easy as most people think, you know, and you know, whatever you have described us, Stephanie, that's exactly, right, what me and Ryan have done in our invest own investment space in the equity and crypto sector. Like before we go in very like uh, deep into an idea or before we even put money into an idea, right? We actually do a shit ton of like research and analysis uh, to make sure that whatever we're buying uh, is like good um good investments. Uh. So I guess like you know, you know, guys, you know, RE21 podcast has always been pretty much fundamentally an uh, investment podcast, right? But I guess like, you know, that's why whenever like people always ask me like whether or not real estate is good or bad, uh, I always say it ends of the day, right? It always goes back to like what are you really interested in and what are you keen in? Because whatever Stephanie has mentioned, right, is that she has done the homework to make sure that, you know, uh, the area that she's considering to buy, you know, and then she even talked about like various risk factors, which exactly are what, you know, any equity investor would do before they buy an uh, investment. You know, like before I even like buy into things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, like things like that, uh, we actually do need to do due diligence, you know, and actually like think about, you know, potentially, you know, Stephanie mentioned the potentially, like you need to think about your debt structure, the term that you buy, you know, then the interest rate increment. And then what Stephanie mentioned about interest, interest rate going up, you know, then whether or not you can afford, uh, you know, in finance, uh, this is what we call int- uh, what, uh, sensitivity testing, you know, because that's really like the only way to like do uh, this type of projection, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm inside personal finance. So every single time when a client comes to me, right, and ask, ask me, right, whether or not they should take this loan at this particular, like uh, take take this loan, for example, they want to take a loan, right, that is like this debt structure 20, 30 years, right? And then they, they are concerned about the interest rate going up. You know, the right way to do it, right, if you're a competent consultant, uh, is to do an interest rate sensitivity test. Meaning, right, you basically just do a projection, you know, of the, of, of the payment uh, and then do a worst case scenario. Let's say, okay, the interest rate I'm borrowing now is 1%. Okay, what if it's go up to 5%, 6%, 7%? Then you do that, right? And then you basically look at the projection of the, the end value of the asset. Let's say I buy 1 million, you know, now the interest rate 1%. And then I foresee in 25 years, maybe I can sell for 1.5. If the interest rate right now is 1%, 25 years I sell 1.5. After I tabulate all the payments, are, do I, am I still profitable? And at what point, right, in the interest rate, once it crosses that particular point, 4 or 5%, then I become a net loss, right? So you see, the, the thing is, right, <laughs> the thing is, I find that people tend to oversimplify uh, investing, right? Uh, and that right when it's actually not as um simple as as uh, the salespeople like to say lah. Because end of the day, um the sexy part is to sell you a dream. The unsexy part is to actually take a step back right and then do the numbers, the Excel right, and basically like do all this like interest rate tabulation or actually wonder whether or not right can it number one if you intend to sell in twenty years right whether or not it can actually hit your price. And then you need to have a level of foresight to see into the future. Like what Stephanie mentioned, right? She's worried about like um, whether or not after the, the tenancy lease is up, whether or not she can get a price. And she's also concerned about uh, competitors, you know? You know, these, these are things which you, we, that investors are in equity, we also think about. Like uh, 10 years from now, whether or not like, um, like for example, if I invest in Walmart uh, in 2010, right? I wonder... I also need to think, uh, like in 2020, right, will Walmart be destroyed by Amazon? You know, these, these are things which we think about. Uh, and it all stands back down to 
uh, how much do you like the investment class that you like? Because if you do like it, right, usually uh, what happens, what tends to happen is that you get pretty good insight in that particular asset class. Yeah, so so um, I, I think like, the, because I think uh, also the reason why we have staff here right, is because um, unlike the equity space you know, and the crypto space, right, we don't usually use margin. Whereas for property, right, when you invest money, the likelihood right, that you need to use margin and you know, borrow from bank is quite high because most of the time, in order for you to get inside property, no matter which like country you're from, uh, you tend to need to borrow. Because I would say that even as what Steph mentioned, right, even if I have clients who have money, right, most of them uh, will generally borrow money uh, to buy a house, uh, even if they are able to like fully pay. Because end of the day, what really matters and what they want is the liquidity. And then I, I would say also add in, right, that the richer and wealthier you are in the terms of hierarchy of wealth, uh, beyond a certain point, uh, once you become classified as a sophisticated or high net worth investor, right? The bank uh, actually allows you, right, to borrow money, uh, not in your home currency, but in other currencies as well. And that becomes very sophisticated. So it's another level of debt, right, which you never really see uh, much talk about, right, in terms of the, the general mass market population or personal finance because if you go to like the high net worth and then you go to a private banker and you talk to them uh, you're talking about family offices uh, the, 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 the loans that they give you is not even like for example you borrow you buy a property in Malaysian ringgit right your money you borrow might not be in Malaysian ringgit you might actually borrow in Japanese yen or you borrow in like a uh, Swiss franc or you borrow in other like uh, currencies and basically the reason why you do that is because the currency is either stronger it's either weaker you know then when you when you pay off right you're actually making money double dipping <laughs> Right, you make money from the currency exchange and you also make money from the property and then you also make money from the interest rate. Because if you borrow, let's say, money from Japan, right? At one point, uh, Japan, the interest rate was negative. Then if you borrow money from Europe, right? At one point, uh, the, the, the interest rate in Europe was negative. You get what I mean? Yeah, so, it's, it's leverage on top of like the foreign sea exchange. Yeah, so I would say that the main reason why I share this story is quite simple because it goes back down to the fundamentals of uh, asset liability, right? A lot of people always think that, you know, liabilities are, is very shallow. I only have credit card, I only have personal loan, I only have mortgage loan. But the fact of the matter is, right, if you actually understand that and you know how to use it, what you're going to realize uh, is that the levels of sophistication uh, that goes into debt structures uh, can be so crazy, right? It's, it's really very sophisticated uh, where it even goes to the extend uh, and the, the the extent right where you can borrow let's say Japanese yen right and then you pay interest even the interest uh, itself uh, can be swapped um, let's say for example instead I don't want to pay the interest rate that the Malaysian uh, OPR is giving I want to pay interest rate on Japanese yen do you know that there's also financial uh, uh, financial instruments that allow you to do that they call it interest rate swap <laughs> so so oh, wow. like I, I'm, I'm just giving you some insight into like the super super like you know high level of finance uh, and what these like bankers they, they like to like package all these style of loans uh. but the, the fact of the matter is right before you can even get there you always go back to the fundamentals of no matter what instrument you take be very prudent with your purchase be very sure what you're buying and make sure that the, the things that you're doing right it, it needs to work in your favor because uh, uh, I would say uh, I always have a mantra to all my clients. Uh, no matter you know where which states of life come out, my mantra when it comes to dealing for financial institutions, especially bank, if it's too good to be true, okay, it often is. Okay, you you need to learn how to navigate the financial space, and if you cannot do it yourself, honestly, you are better served right if you can find a professional who do it for you. 
Like for example, I give a very good example. Like for example, when you have legal issues, you go to a lawyer, right? So if you have a financial question and you are not very sure of yourself, hire an accountant. Hire a person who's good in this. You know, because end of the day, when you pay for this type of like professional advice, you you're really skipping like 10, 15, 20 years ahead of your peers, right? Who are just learning about this firsthand. So sometimes, right, it does it does make sense uh, for you to pay for this type of like uh, advice uh, because if you cannot do it yourself, right, sometimes it's, it makes sense for you to hire a professional to do it. Yeah. So coming back to like um coming back to the um homes and and debt, right, Stephanie, I think the next question I have to ask is um debt's impact on asset price. Like um do you feel that asset prices are high largely because most people are buying homes using that? Mm, personally, I feel that it's related. So I think like you mentioned just now where, you know, the total allowable uh, DSR in Singapore is about 40%, is it? Yes, around 40 to 50. Yeah, but I in Malaysia, it's not that strict. So it depends on the uh, level of salary la, the person is earning. So the higher it goes, the more you can borrow. And it can be even up to 80%. So of course, if you're a rich person, then you get even more. Uh, meaning uh, even more than that, la, meaning more than 80%. So I feel that uh, that's one of the factors. And even uh, it has also appeared in news several times that, you know, because of the ease of getting credit, it has kind of somehow in a way push, uh, push up the property price. So I find that there's a correlation on that. I'm, uh, yeah, what do you think, Aaron? Uh I, I guess the main question why I ask you that is because I'm wondering uh, whether the property market is a credit market or is it a cash market? Because if it's a credit market, right, my question is how leveraged is the market? You get what I mean? Because it's like, uh, it's okay to borrow a little bit of money, but I think my concern comes, right, is that if you're talking about like like a median income person, right, borrowing 80% of their cash flow, uh, it kind of signals to me that either the incomes are too low or the market or the property market is very hot. 80% yeah, DSR, for lack of a better word, I feel like the property market is leveraged balls to the walls, man. Yeah. And then, like, like see, it uh, really, it, it's signaling like, uh, this is, a lot of people going to shit on me for saying this, but it sounds like a freaking bubble, you know. I'm not going to, try to be like Michael Burry and like shot the market. But I, I'm just so worried. Uh, it's part of like the reason why like I uh, I rented instead of like uh, buying a place because I'm so concerned. But Maybe Steph, you did mention, right? You, I mean, yeah. you did mention, right, Steph, that there, there is still value in the second uh, resale market, right? Yes, yes. In fact, a lot of people have managed to, you know, make some profit out of the subsell. Or if you really just want to find a value a value like worthy uh, house to buy, there are still opportunities in the subsell market where it's not that expensive yet. Yeah, it's quite rare. You may have to take some time to look. And once you find, once you have found it, you have to really grab it. Like, the property clock way of looking at the property market now, uh, we are around, I would say around six coming up to seven or even eight o'clock. So I would say most of the money made would be when the market is bottoming. So just like the, the, the stock market, right? So I find there's still value in the subsell market. That's why I always think that's value, but just have to be really hardworking to find out good deals. 
and desperate seller. So follow-up question on these um uh good deals on the subsale market, right? Does all the all these uh, properties do they tend to be in those um high demand areas? Like uh say uh in for example in KL there's like um Bangsa, there's like uh Monkara, there's like Desa Park City and uh yeah, but do they tend to be located in these um super high demand areas? Yes, definitely. It's just oh, that's, that that's interesting. Yeah, it's just that it's lesser, but doesn't mean that there isn't any. So just have to really keep a lookout, and then also I find um you know have a few good uh property agent uh like right. you know treat them well enough, they will give you the insider deal firsthand that's before that. Yeah, no, because I shout out to Steffi Kondo at Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm not based in KL. So if you have a few good uh, agents, then they will definitely help you as well to give you the good deals before they post it out. Oh, right, promote right. it. Uh, yeah. like because for yourself, you, you, Steffi. Yeah. For yourself, uh, Steffi, just sorry to interject. Uh, but for yourself, uh, do you actually buy uh, brand new or you tend to go for resale? I bought both brand new and resale. And I find that resale has more value. But brand new is good in a way where the upfront cost is not that high. You can get in cheap, like may- maybe the developer throw in promotions and yeah, so you can get in cheaper. But subsell, there's more value as in uh, I get to buy under market value. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, there's benefits for both actually. So one is get in cheap and the other one is I find more value, la, like more under market value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, actually, Steph, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, would you say that uh, for a person who wants to buy a house, right, to live in, uh, let's say I'm, I'm, I don't care about investing, right? It makes more sense for me to buy a brand new unit. Uh, then if I'm an investor, you know, and my concern is capital appreciation and higher rental, does it make more sense for me to go subsell? Uh, I think yes, but for certain subsell unit, uh, the investor may have to get ready some like re- refurbishing costs, uh, like to make mm. the unit nice, yeah, so that they can rent out at higher mm. yeah so guys you so. heard it from Steph <laughs> uh, I, I guess like the, the main reason why I asked is because I do know that um, coaching the property market is quite hot uh. like uh, because I do have a few friends uh, from coaching right and they oh. do they usually do they did tell me that the property market there has been very like wow the, the, the cost the cost there correct me if I'm wrong uh, has been soaring as of the last few years am I right to say that yes it's quite scary and I how much percent increase uh, would you say like in the last like three years like like the property price you buy uh, not, 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 you don't have to tell us your performance uh, but I would say that uh, what, what percent increase like in the last uh, two years uh, since COVID I would say 20 to 30 percent wow every yeah. year or uh, I think uh, no I mean within these three years uh, mm. and, and then before these three years uh, have you ever seen such a huge increase before no actually it's more gradual increase but I would say it's because of the undersupply. Actually, uh, Kuching is facing some undersupply. So if the area that you are targeting to get is facing some undersupply, definitely the area may be going to face like upward pressure on price. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Everyone, you heard from her, huh? there's alpha in Kuching. I repeat, there is alpha in Kuching. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would say like like that's why we always enjoy talking to you like, because like uh you tend to always come from a a a perspective where it is an investment and you need to do your due diligence uh yeah. which we do find that is quite rare amongst uh, property like, because you know I mean I don't think it's just specific to Malaysia because 
um, I very clearly remember during the COVID crash, right after the post COVID, uh, you know, one of my mentors, right, he told me that he was he wanted he's been waiting a long time to buy a condo. You know, he wanted to buy an investment property for his investments, uh, for his retirement. So he wanted to rent out. So he was waiting for this like uh uh show show flat right in Singapore, one of the condo developments, right. And then when he got there, because they they opened the show flat now, and everybody was so scared. That the 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 property that that basically like you know the cash is going to shit because they're printing so much money right that there were like eight hour long queues uh, for people to buy the brand new launch condo and you know like they they started waiting at eight o'clock right and then by six p.m. Uh, the entire development was sold out wow. what one yeah, day and then in one day the entire development was sold out so. My question is, number one, uh, Singaporeans really got that much money, uh, number one. Number two, <laughs> number two, right? Uh, it also kind of signaled to me that it was a little bit of a bubble because um, towards, because my, my mentor, right, he was, he was actually buying the flat towards the end, right? Then he actually, thankfully, I don't think he, he, he said he wanted to buy because the price was increased, because, uh, insane. Because like, I think within a span of like that, eight hour window, uh, people were literally uh, signing documents to buy uh, units, right? Where they have no idea where the unit are you know so they don't even get to select their units and they're paying a premium of like 30 to 40 percent above the initial price at 8 a.m so is that is that not a normal thing in uh singapore because like in malaysia no, right not. in malaysia right like one of those high demand properties what they do is like during launch they when you sign up they do like a raffle thing where they they kind of like pick people at random and give you like a like a couple of days time frame to confirm whether you want to buy the unit or not but you don't get to choose where the unit is it all depends on your luck in that sense as for public housing in singapore but i would say that in the most most of the private condos that i go to you always get to choose your unit your exact unit they literally do a model up for you and they ask you okay where you want you point to the unit, we tell you the unit number, then I buy. Right. Yeah, they don't they, they really don't do raffles unless as you mentioned, like, it's a super hot like property. La. But um I think the the problem was that that particular property was not a hot property. It was like a pretty like average like property and people were getting in uh, because they were so worried about the undersupply because of COVID. So they were very concerned that, you know, that we weren't able to build enough houses for the next few years. La. And so they basically um, were waiting for a crash and the crash didn't happen, right? Then basically property prices within a span of one year, like what Steph has mentioned in Singapore, also surged by 30%. There was a public housing in Singapore, right? I think last week in the news uh, that sold for 1.4 million Singapore dollars. Oh, that sounds like FOMO. That is not... Uh, I would say it's prime location. Okay, so in terms of like relative value to private, it's not too bad, you know? Um, But I would say that it kind of shows you like... um. It kind of shows you basically going back to the case that I think most people, the reason why they are looking to diversify assets, right, is because they are very scared that the currency and their savings are get liquidated and basically get devalued. Because, I mean, um, you Malaysians probably would have felt it quite badly, I think, in the last year or so where you saw your ringgit depreciate, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so like, like I always like always like when I was young, I was always wondering why. Uh, because I I came from a primary school where I think 30 percent of our classmates were Malaysians. You know, so I always wondered why, uh, Malaysians like to buy gold. Uh, when I was young, uh, Then uh, when I grew older, I I started to realize it's because uh the ringgit um needs to be hedged lah. I would say if you if you are earning in ringgit, then it needs you do need to buy things to make sure that your savings don't get inflated away. I mean, inflation is also a problem in Singapore, but I think it's a bit worse when it comes to Malaysia. 
you know so i, I think that's why um you know people buy a store of value assets like property and you know if you borrow in ringgit right and if your ring and you use that ringgit debt and then you buy a us dollar asset you know it is it goes back to the question of double dipping right you earn on the currency and you also earn on the asset okay uh, Steph, i would like to ask you right knowing that you foresee right that interest rates are likely to increase uh, do you feel that it justifies uh people to hold cash or do you feel that you know business as usual people can still buy homes i feel that those who who need to buy a home will still buy a home uh, because I don't see a shortage of demand uh, as of now. So I still feel those who really need will still buy. I mean, at least in Kuching, uh, in the case of Kuching, but uh, in the from the Property Guru report, it has been reported that there's more people renting than buying now because the demand, the demand curve is a bit uh, slowing down now as compared to people looking to rent. So does that mean there's actually like less... Because uh, I think we can all agree that the property market is quite um, dominated by people who take on multiple loans to buy multiple properties, leverage and all. So would you say that um, there's less, much less investors nowadays versus uh, renters? I would say there's still a, a lot of investors because... Um, especially those who are really uh, invested in property, they would they would think that you know uh, property investment is more straightforward compared to other types of investment. So I really find that that's one of the reasons why they stick or they want to try out property investment. Now. But I think yeah, in that sense, um, it, it, like in equities, we always say we want to dollar cost average, dollar cost average. But when you take a loan to buy a house, you're basically forced to dollar cost average for the next 35 months. So I think in that sense, it's quite good that, you know, people are disciplined enough to pay the mortgage every month and keep holding on the property until the day they sell, right? Yeah, and if they can get someone to rent their place and give them cash flow, then I think that's also a very good thing. But provided they invest back the cash flow that they earn every month. So in a way, that's kind of like dividend stocks and like uh, dividend reinvesting plan, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. So, um, Erin, you were saying? Uh, I would say that in many ways, what Steph has described is uh, value investing uh, when it comes to um, property because that's how I've always viewed uh, uh, the property asset class because uh, whenever you want to earn or uh, whenever you want to make profit in uh, real estate, right, you know, and property, uh, usually what I've noticed over the years is that you need to be able to buy the asset at a valuation that's below market rate. That is really the main way uh, that you make money from uh, property, you know? Um, because like, um, property, do you feel that it can 5x over um, 35 years? Is that possible? It's only possible when you leverage. Like, but like, if you talk about like the underlying asset price, right? It, it's not going to do that. Like, it's like, definitely like, not going to do that. Yeah, because in Singapore, right, I can share that in the last 25 years, our property prices definitely did not 5x. At most, it only went up by about 40%, maybe about 50%. The analyzed rate of return for public housing in Singapore has only went up about 3% per year. You know, so if you take a multiple, you take the 72, right, basically you're only at most doubling your property price in about 25 years. You know, so like I, I find it very difficult uh, uh, when it comes to like property investing uh, to come uh, from a perspective of a growth investor. You get what I mean? Because um, if I borrow money, right, and then I'm paying like a 5% 
like interest rate, right? I find it very, very tough uh, to get a return uh, that is about 5 to 10x uh, my borrowing. Because I would say that in most cases, uh, property, the asset class is quite a competitive market. Like, it's a very competitive asset class. You're fighting against developers. You're fighting against organizations who are designed uh, to mass rent. And then you're also fighting against Airbnb, you're fighting against Agoda.com, you're fighting against hotels for accommodation, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then if you're a person, a singular person who has to juggle all this, right? Then I would say the in terms of cost, in terms of business, uh, in, you, the cost, the, the, the only way that you will have uh, advantage, right, is that you are a single person. Uh, you know, you're one person, right? And then you buy below market cost, which is essentially a value investor play which is what you can do in equity. But I would say that it, it, it is probably more effective in property because um, property generally, right, the value of the real estate generally does hold. Uh, because um, as what Stephanie has mentioned is that the demand for property generally does not go down. I think stems from cultural values in terms of the Asian culture. Uh, because the Asian culture is that, you know, after you hit adulthood, uh, it's best that you buy your own place, you buy a house because we do love uh, properties. Uh, you know, but I think you also doesn't mean that you love property means that you overpay. And that means that you must come from a person who is like, where is the value? And if possible, I would like to buy below market price. Yes. Okay. Yes, I definitely right. agree. And then the, yeah, and then I guess uh, the, the bigger picture is whether or not the market price is inflated. Uh, because um, personally, I, I don't really see that. Um, I, I don't know how bad is it. I, I don't know how like inflated the market is because I'm not in Malaysia. But I can say in Singapore, right, I wouldn't say that our property market is overinflated. I would say that um, the government has learned over the years right here, right, to know how to manage the prices. And usually the key metric that I look at, uh, you know, when it comes to whether or not the property market is overvalued, right, is to look at the, the, the mortgage cash flow percentage uh, that people are paying in that country. I say that I do not think that we are in a bubble because uh, on average, a couple usually still spends around 20 to 30% of their income into uh, one home property. Uh. We don't we generally do not exceed that. It's usually around 23%. And even if we come out cash, uh, at most uh, stretch 30% is the max. Yeah, this is the Singapore like uh, percentage. Uh. Whereas in Malaysia, you know, if you're telling me like people are stretching 50, 80%, um, it's, it's, it's tough for me to get my head around. Uh, you know? yeah. it's, 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 the, the, the number is a bit insane, I would say. The leverage, the level of leverage that uh, Malaysians take is a bit I would say uns it's on a very unsafe level if that makes sense because like but, you just hear but, stories about people aping like 50% of their monthly income into a house uh, just because their parents or their girlfriend uh, their, their, their uh, in-laws wanted them to have a house and it's like depressing you know then the person's like living on like 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 I don't know minimum wage conditions and then just because he needs to own the house it's very depressing yeah I think the standard of living gets hit quite badly also yeah. and if you consider like in like I'm not sure about the whole Malaysia but in KL especially the Klang Valley right you just see like ghost townships popping up left and right in the city centre also you have like all the ghost condos ghost office towers and there's like nobody there's no uh, occupants there there's no nobody who actually uses the property and somehow somehow rather the property prices are still going up like nobody's business it it just blows my mind because like in the end of the day all these things are all su supply and demand right but in in Klang Valley's case I speculate it's being propped up by credit and and that's like a perfect storm for uh the 08 09 crisis 
in US. Uh, Stephanie, just a quick question. Uh, uh, most of the people that you meet, uh, do they come across as a prudent bias? Are they still quite prudent in the terms mm. of the amount of leverage do they take? Like uh, on average, when you like look at people who buy property in your area, right? Usually how many percent of their income, let's say they're generating like first-time buyers, they want to buy their homes. Uh, how many percent of their income do you usually take for their, their loans? Um, I would say because I serve mainly... Um, younger younger buyers like millennials are. so i find that it's a it's a 50 50 some uh some of them they know how much they should buy some of them they really have no idea um like even when they come into a show gallery right um they will ask me hey how how's the process like how how is it usually like or to apply loan what should i have and and i would say it's not uncommon to to see to have buyers that actually do not know how much they can actually afford uh, before stepping into a show gallery. So, which I, I think it's very important to know to know all this, uh, like how much you can actually afford, how much debt should you take, uh, whether you can afford these houses or not, or what range, what price range should you get. I find that that's not widely talked about enough. Lah. What was the good like percentage range, you think? I would say 50-50. It, it's not that bad, but it's not that good either. Lah. Uh, but as in, let's say, for example, if I'm a new buyer, right, what do you think is like the percentage of income I should set aside every month to comfortably afford a place? Is it 10% of my income, 20% of my income? Um, I would say th- those that I've come across, they will even go 30 to 40% of their income. Just oh. on, yeah. And it's, um, it's like mostly couple. Mm. So, so that means it's uh, both of the couple like the the girlfriend and the boyfriend both are uh are putting down thirty to forty percent of their income just to buy the house. Yes. And oh my god. And they may not even need that kind of space. Like a couple, young couple, like what you mentioned, boyfriend, girlfriend, but um they are looking at semi D. So it's it's very not uncommon. Uh. It's actually quite common. So so I, I feel that it's important to remind buyer to know actually what do you need? Do you really need that that size? And then whether you really need to commit yourself to such a big purchase at this stage. Lah. Since we're on the topic, right? I yeah. guess I'll just pivot to the next question. Like, how much leverage do you think these first-time buyers should, should actually take? Like, in terms of the mortgage and everything, how many percent of their salaries do uh, you think is like a healthy ratio that uh, these buyers should, should, should take? Actually, I'm not sure if I'm professional enough to comment. I think... I, I think no one. No, it's take... okay. Aside yeah. from Aaron, me, I'm also not a professional. I'm just speculating <laughs> everything. Yeah. So just go for it. Go for it. Uh, I think it shouldn't be more than thirty percent. I really feel that. Yeah, that, that's kind of like my answer. So thirty, anything more than a thirty percent is to me it's hell. I feel because I've been I've been like on on a thirty three percent debt before. So I know how it feels to be like when uh you're servicing a uh, debt that eats up uh 33% of your salary and feels like shit. Yeah, it really feels and, like shit. Yeah, and there's possibilities that that may go up because of the interest rate as well. So that's pretty scary. Uh. How much of like a uh, leeway or um space that you would actually give out uh, if you factor in the interest rate increasing? Actually, when it comes to calculating interest rate, right, I won't follow like the current interest rate. I will add in more like let's say when I'm using the uh, interest rate calculator right like for example now it's like 3.1 or maybe increase to 3.5 so I will factor in I will use 4 or 4.3 just to be safe to know that hey, actually at 4.3 even if it increased to 4.3 will I be able to comfortably pay for it still 
So I won't go for minimum interest rate. I will go for higher, like when I'm calculating. Just to be on the conservative side. Right? Yeah. And this is what uh, Aaron mentioned, is how the, sensitiv- the, the sensitivity testing, um, yeah. right, Aaron? Yeah. How much leverage should you take and like what kind of the sensitivity testing that uh, should actually go into the analysis before someone commits like 30 or 40% of their income to, to debt? Okay, um, I love this question because this is the execution part of uh, debt. Nah. So basically, I can share from experience um, and also amongst my many clients, right, that whatever Steph has mentioned, 30% as the absolute max is probably a very good guideline, especially if you're Malaysian. Okay, why? 30%, right, gives you a very good, comfortable buffer because actually, right, in terms of personal finance, uh, it's not uncommon to find people who go up to 50%. Okay, but the reason why you want to stick to 30% is because you need that additional 20% as a buffer in case, as what Steph has mentioned, the interest rate goes up. All right. And for most Malaysians, uh, you don't just have your home loans to pay. Okay. You also have a car loan most of the time. Right. You also have car loans to pay. And generally, um, if you cap it at 30%, uh, then if the car loan takes another 5 to 10%, then you're looking at 40%. Right. So the last 10% is used as a buffer in the event that the interest rate goes up. Because as I have illustrated just now, for every single percentage point increase in interest rates, right, your cash outlay component increases about 10 to 15%. So assuming, let's say, the interest rate goes up by 3%, and you're talking about a 40% increment of your cash outlay, which actually translates to, to be about, about a net 10% increase of your debt commitment, right? Which is why uh, in Singapore, right, the magical number is 23%. Because... Our CPF, which is similar to your EPF, right? Uh, 23% of our monthly commitments, right, actually goes towards buying a house. So the government has really predetermined that the rate, uh, the percentage outlay uh, is 23%. And that actually is very comfortable for most people to actually afford a house without actually coming out any cash. And basically, we just use our CPF to fund the house in Singapore. So um, it works in Singapore, and I'm pretty sure it also works in Malaysia. But I think the hard part for most uh, people, especially young couples to grasp, right, is that when they when you tell them, right, that they can only use 30%, then, then when the problem is that when they look at the options which they have, most of the time they are concerned that, you know, it is not enough to get what they want, correct? Because whenever you say, you set a limit, let's say 30%, right, sometimes people will take a step back and they look, oh, you know, with 30%, you calculate this much, uh, then you go to a show flat, then you the actual place that you want, right, actually might even take up sometimes 50% of your income. And that's that's like taking, as what Steph says, a bare minimum like interest, uh, bare minimum interest without any sensitivity test. Although 30% is a good guideline, I would say that most people, you know, especially, um, Young couples, if they want a home that is, you know, what they want, uh, they tend to go and stretch 50, sometimes 80%. Okay, in this particular instance, right, then you need to do what Ryan do, which is very simple. Basically, you need to earn more money. It's a simple solution, right? Because, I mean, two things have to give. It's either you go for something which you can afford or you basically just earn more money realistically speaking. So it goes back to our career podcast, which is the previous episode where you need to plan for your career to earn more money, to afford the things that you want, all right? Or you basically just start out small, as what Steph has mentioned. You know, there's no harm in starting out something small. You know why? Because the beauty about property, right? And the beauty about real estate, right? Is that when you start, okay, early as something that's affordable, you actually build equity on the home, okay? You actually build equity on the home compared to renting. Because... 
let's say you rent, right? Uh, let's say you're paying like a thousand. In Singapore, let's say you pay about thousand five, you rent. After 25 years, you still have to continue pay rent. All right. Now, people like me and Ryan, we can do that. Okay. Because we know that we're very disciplined to invest money uh, into things like equity, into things like uh, high performing, like, um, uh, businesses, high performing investment ideas that can probably 10 to 20x within that time frame. But I would say the large majority of people, right, 99.9% of people, right, most of them, right, they do not have the, that discipline uh, to invest the savings that they would have gotten, right, from renting. So essentially, uh, you go back to the mantra, right, that people buy property because they need to be chased by a tiger to, to, to basically, like, um, discipline them to invest into asset building uh, properties. Lah. So in this case, you know, even though some people, right, they say they buy 50%, right, they, they, they put in 50%, lah, but to them, uh, the couple is okay because they don't invest their money. You know, they're not going to buy shares. They're not going to buy equity. They're not going to buy crypto. So to them, the house is an asset which they are building. And anyway, after 35 years, they're fully paid, then they own an asset, right? So, um, I mean, there's many ways to think about um, the, the this asset class. Huh? But I will say that um, for the many years that I've often viewed um, unfavorably towards the, the property asset class, right? I always never ever like dispute it, you know, because I always know that there's an anchor, right? Where there is a particular portion of people, right? Who basically just not comfortable owning equity or stock investments. That's why they prefer property because it's something they can see, something they can touch. And I think the fact of the matter of what makes property work in the event that you make sure that it's uh, within your means uh, is that it keeps you invested, provided that you buy at a fair value. Yeah, basically the, the monthly uh, mortgages that you pay is like forcing yourself to DCA every month. You have no choice. You have to pay it. Yeah, and, and basically yeah. the end result is, is, is you see, you see uh, the end of the tenure, right? the end of 35 years, uh, basically you don't have to pay rent. So even if, let's say, you don't sell your property, you have a roof over your head. You get what I mean? Which is quite invaluable for some people. Like my mom, you know, she's not an investor. So I think the best thing that she did was that she buy a house and then now she doesn't have to pay rent. Nah. You get what I mean? Whereas for yeah. like people like, you know, me, people like Ryan, you know, we are, I mean, I will say that we, we know how to invest our money, right? And we, we can do this because in a way, we know how to invest our money, you know, but for certain people, right, who are not very in tune with like investment classes, uh, property, I would say that the property market, uh, if you have very good uh, professionals working for you, very good agents, right, like people who know what they're doing, people like Stephanie.comdo, follow her on Instagram, uh, know what they're doing, right, is that you get things at fair value and the likelihood that property, like, drops as much as 0809, right? The risk can be mitigated, right? If you buy it at a fair value. Yeah. Yes, or okay. under market value. Okay. Um, I would say the risk, in terms of like the risk, right, is a lot less um, in property as compared to buying a business because in many ways, I think property, the reason why it has held out so well is because it's very difficult for you to remove that a fundamental belief uh, that a roof over your head is is a necessity in life. Lah. It's, it's very tough. Lah. But, um, you know, we can make many arguments about it. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is if you are in a place where it's an Asian culture, right? Asians, we tend to like to own a roof over our head. Lah. And that's something which I do not foresee going away anytime soon. Like, uh, for many cases, like the youngsters might say that we prefer to rent, uh, in a situation, right, where buying a house is cheaper than renting, like in Singapore, I would say that most people will buy. Yeah, definitely. 
I guess it just makes much more sense when the uh, mortgage that you're paying is less than uh, the rental. It's just a better financial decision all over. Yeah, and uh, of course you have to weigh that against like building equity also. La, because like sometimes you do have to factor in the fact that after 25 or 35 years, you don't have to pay rent anymore. So you also have to uh, value that uh, at the end of 35 years, uh, how do you value that uh, rent-free asset? You get what I mean? Uh, because like okay the way I do it is quite simple right basically like for example I pay 35 years I buy the entire amount that I put in over 35 years let's say it's 1.5 million right then I just basically just take an interest rate of that 1.5 million so for example if let's say uh, I want 4% so basically I just value the cash flow uh, at 4% at the end of 35 years uh, growing at maybe like 5% a year so for example I will just value the end asset rental to me rent free is about 60,000 uh, maybe 60,000 ringgit every year that I don't have to pay so that's how I value it la. Yeah. so I think that's something which is quite uh, that's, that's like the easiest way to value that uh, structure which when you buy a property right, but we've oh, been then, talk about risk right you said yeah. you mentioned just now that there's a higher risk in uh, equity compared to property but I kind of like disagree because I'm coming from an angle right, where I, I would think that getting yourself into a mortgage actually means that you are holding on to an illiquid asset which you cannot readily sell compared to like stocks or crypto but okay. uh, of course in crypto when you buy crypto or uh, equities or like the high performing growth stocks you know those are volatility and but there's just like a nice little balance between liquidity and um uh volatility and uh does that make sense like uh you, there's a nice balance if like uh you go for the stability then there's like just much less liquidity on uh, the property market but uh vice versa if you go for like equities there's like just much more liquidity you can sell whenever or you can buy whenever but um, it also comes at a price of volatility. I would say that, uh, to clarify on the risk, I would say that um, my main point of view when it comes to risk, right, when it comes to asset classes, uh, is whether or not the individual can actually execute when shit hits the fan. Mm, you get what I mean? Yeah, and yeah that makes sense. In the, case, in the case of property, right, even if shit hits the fan, uh, the likelihood that the person continue to pay mortgage is actually a lot higher than a person to continue to DCA into uh, um, equity. Because I have seen it in practice, right, that um, even in the COVID crisis and then in 2011, 2012, right, when the, sh- the market was falling, uh, I very rare see people, right, they actually continue to invest their money. In fact, some of them even stopped their DCA, you know. And I think the worst part for, for, for uh, I think for equity, right, is that you DCA into a dying business. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the worst. That's actually yeah, so- worst. So, so like, I guess it depends on the individual on how well-tuned they are in the asset class. Uh, and I would say that uh, the reason why I say property market is sort of less risky is because it is quite, a, I would say that in a way, because it is so competitive, you know, the, the market is so competitive that in many ways, uh, if you actually are just a little bit prudent about it, right, the likelihood that you lose uh, your entire wealth uh, is not as high as equity if you're not careful in crypto. The worst case scenario, you end up with a house uh, to, to... In the ghost to, town. Uh. <laughs> yeah. But, but you, still have, you, still, you still have like a house uh, for your retirement or something, a roof over your head when, when you're older. Yeah, it's not oh, too bad. You see, the downsides are not as bad as like um, equities. Uh. Yeah, yeah, that I, mean, that we, I would agree. Yeah, we, we have seen the, the repercussions of what happened uh, last week, right? When we saw like the one of the biggest like crypto projects went to shit. You know, there were many 
Singaporeans, right, who actually like sold their house uh, and then like took a reverse mortgage. They took loans against their house uh, and they basically invested everything into uh, Terra and Luna. You know, and then when that crash, uh, literally, uh, they had to start from scratch. They like went from 2.4. Some of them went from like multi-millions or uh, went back all the way down to zero. So it was, oh. I mean, I mean, this is a very perfect illustration example of human psyche. And that is when facts change. Uh, you'll realize that most people tend to not change their views in a down market. Because I think it is very, um, having invested so many years, right, I, I sort of come to the conclusion uh, that people don't want to believe it, right, when facts change and they tend to be quite stubborn into holding on to assets uh, even though the facts have changed, right? Uh, I, there are many examples of this. You look at uh, when Amazon was rising, people say that Walmart would take the lead, you know, and then now you say that uh, then in the instance of like Tesla, you know, where they start to grow so much and then they say that they will never take the lead, you know, and then now you say that there's a crypto, you know, Bitcoin taking over like the, the monetization and people will say that uh, there's no value in it when even though final settlement is actually a very valuable like uh, thing to have, you know, it's a very, actually like Bitcoin, the final settlement network is something which is extremely valuable, I think, to many people, you know, because it the across space and time, right, it's a very, it is property, digital property, which has never been done before. Right, so that's why I invest inside Bitcoin. I've done my research, I've done my homework, and that's why I invested. Right, so I mean, these are some examples, right, where you know when you invest your money into equity, right, you have to understand uh, that in the 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 business environment, uh, they generally change every five to ten years. There's usually waves of innovation and change uh, that happens every five to ten years, which means that uh, investor right of a business or a singular stock right, short of buying the S and P five hundred, uh, you have to be willing uh, to pivot, which I find tends to, uh, which I find right most people cannot do because they always end up buying a. Uh, Things like Bursa Stock Exchange, even in Singapore, they tend to buy things like STI. Mm. Yeah, you know, and and uh, that's why I say like in in the property market, it takes usually about ten years lah before the market really changed because like the 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 speed of how the market changed really depends on how fast you can build the buildings, right? So in many ways, uh, the property market uh, they it just moves slower than the equity market because it's not as liquid. So in many ways, right? Therefore, um. If you're talking about 25-year time horizon, uh, I would say that property will not change as much as business climate. Right. Yeah, that's why that's why when you talk about like risk, right? Sometimes people they just are not that comfortable to see um much change. Uh, they prefer something which is very predictable. They sort of know like 20, 25 years, they can still see that you know it will still be okay. That's why they buy uh, property. Yeah, it all ties back down to who you are as an investor, as an individual. And then like, what do you uh, want to achieve in your wealth building goals? Uh? Because, um, you know, there's not one way to do it. Uh, there's multiple ways. Uh, but as you mentioned, Ryan, I like uh, what you mentioned is that you need to have a very good balance. You cannot just like, uh, I, I would say that all into one is not a very good way to go about it. I think like end of the day, I do advocate for making sure that you at least, uh, even if you don't invest in the other asset class, right, at least acknowledge uh, that, um, you know, there is opportunity there and then you just have to acknowledge that, that just that's just not for you, which is what I did in property. Lah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm also not a uh, property guy because like I, I'm I'm uh, just not too interested in like, uh, like what Stephanie said just now, it's a lot of work, you know, yeah. you have to engage lawyers, you have to engage your, your property agent, you know, I'm just not into that because it's just way too much work for me. Uh, to me, like equity is like, uh, I just um, uh, 
put in money and then I deposit my money and I click this buy button and then I'm invested. You know, it's it, it's a 10 minute process versus like how many months of due diligence and survey on the site. So I, I, I'm just not up for that. Yeah. And it depends on the person's strength and the advantage that a person have, right? If the person is in property, then it's definitely more advantageous for a person to 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 invest in property. Yeah, definitely. That's the uh, unfair advantage that uh, a person who's in the industry has over like uh, more layman investors. Yeah. All right. So now let's get into like the next topic that we've talked about, the interaction of debt and currency exchange rates. So how does currency exchange rates impact your loan size, Aaron? Oh, wow, this one. Um, okay, uh, I think the best example I can give is my personal loan, which I took in Singapore dollar. Um, I, and then I used that to buy uh, crypto, right? And then uh, basically... A lot of people would say that I made a mistake, but I would argue otherwise because actually my loan tenure is six years. So I don't, number one, I cannot time the market. All right. Number two, uh, basically my loan percentage loan is about, I think three or 4% uh, annualized. Yeah. For the next six years. Right. So I think for me, right. My, my question is twofold. This one is, it's not just interest rate and currency. I borrow in Sing dollar. All right, and then I invested in, into crypto, right? Where the growth is about fifty percent for the next six years versus a loan, which is about uh three to four percent per year. I just estimate that the likelihood that this will be a good uh investment is high, and also largely the reason why I took that loan is because I am not leveraged before I did this. Basically, I don't have debt. I'm actually debt free, you know. Um, and then I did feel that it's important for me to have a little bit of that because I do want it, right? And also to build a future credit, like um, ability, like it's what, you know, Steph, Steph say, right? You need to have a little bit of a credit history, you know? So that's that's why I decided to do it because I do have like upcoming, like future big purchases, which I want to do and I do want to borrow. So it's good to display that um, I have like a good credit history of repaying my debt. Lah. So that's why I took it. So, uh, and also because the the loan was in sing dollar and the sing dollar ever since like many other currencies over the last three months has devalued against the us dollar quite significantly i borrowed the sing dollar i think when it was about 1.32 now it's about 1.39 1.3 1.4 which means that my debt size just from the currency exchange alone has already been devalued by about six percent yeah wow. so just the currency exchange alone right um i think if i borrow in ringgit it will be even more lah. so <laughs> Uh, but I, I don't think I can borrow in ringgit because I don't have a I don't have like a bank account in Malaysia. But I mean, this just displays right. Like if you're able to borrow um debt right in a currency that is inflating, right? Then you can invest it into a hard asset that is in uh, you know even in the even in US dollar, right? Generally, over time, what you'll realize is that it tends to be a pretty good arbitrage play, lah. Generally, mm. but I would say that it all goes back to like, uh, just make sure that you don't overcommit and overborrow. You know, my debt size is very super manageable. You know, I don't spend more than, uh, in fact, my debt outlay in terms of my cash flow, I don't spend more than five percent of my cash flow on debt at all. So basically, my you talk about 20-30%, uh, my debt outlay cash flow every month is only 5% of my income only. So I really don't like, uh, I don't really have a huge like uh, outlay for debt. Right. Yeah, so, so when you look at my structure, right, I'm very, very conservatively structured. Uh, and essentially, I just need a micro-saver, which is uh, what I feel is the right, um, 
decision to make. And I'm very comfortable with it. You know, I'm very comfortable holding that debt. I do like that structure, you know, because I know that my time horizon is in six years. And then I estimate that the likelihood of success is very high. And I think most of all, I can actually pay off the debt. I actually took on debt, which I can pay off. Uh, and, and if I liquidate my assets, I actually can pay off no issue. Yeah. So, uh, Stephanie, do you have any thoughts around this? Hey, no, actually, yeah. That, uh, I, I actually have a question that I wanted to ask as well regarding this. So, well, property and I mean, is there any relation between property and exchange rates? And how is it like? And yeah, how to make use of it? I would say yes, if you're a huge borrower, because like um, what, what you realize, right, is that um, for the people who are literally quite, uh, who, are, who are the people who are a little bit wealthier, right? Usually the bankers, right, they will usually ask them if they want to take loan and then post collateral. So usually what happens, right, is that they will usually put collateral for hard assets uh, and usually things are things like property. La. So they'll put the property up for collateral and then they'll uh, borrow the money. So, right, so then usually when they borrow the money, uh, the, the way that they can borrow it is either they will give them an option to either borrow in local currency or borrow in uh, foreign currency. So if you borrow in foreign currency, right, and then you use your collateral, which is like denominated in your local currency right then there's also an arbitrage that's going on so for example if you put up a collateral of like let's say a malaysian property right but then you borrow in us dollar that might not be the best uh, way forward lah. um if you like borrow uh if you like put collateral right which is like basically in a local one and then if your your local asset tends to be inflationary against the us dollar it might not be the best way to go about it so what you usually want uh, is to borrow in um, the local currency and then you basically use that to buy uh, other currency. Like in this case, usually I just uh, show the US dollar because usually US, US dollar, usually the currency over time has always shown to demonstrate very good uh, inflation resistance as compared to other currencies. Yeah, right. that's what I would say. Thanks for sharing that. So I mean like in terms of like impact to like the retail investor, I would say that most retail investors will not really um see this issue but i guess the fastest the, the fastest impact you will see is the depreciation of your currency right which is like 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 i've shared i've shared the story right for singapore and the singaporeans who invested uh, money in properties in malaysia right like there were there was a period of time when many many um you know, property developers were marketing their properties uh, of Iskandar, uh, K, um, Johor, Baru, right, to Malay, uh, Singaporeans, right? And a lot of Singaporeans actually bought property over there in the hopes that basically whatever they have sold, right, could be executed. And essentially what happened was that um, even though on paper they might have earned in terms of ringgit, right, but when you actually translate the ringgit to sing dollar, a lot of Singaporeans actually lost money. And the worst case is that I think a lot of them cannot actually liquidate their purchase of the property. And the worst part is that even if they have a place to stay when they go over there, right, the property development, the area there is basically just not developed. Yeah, so wow. this is a very good example, right, of you um, buying assets overseas, right? And then basically, even if let's say there is a paper gain in the local currency, right? But if the local currency works against your favor, all right, because the Sing dollar has strengthened against the Malaysian ringgit, uh, in the last like 10 years, right? You will start to realize uh, that actually even though on paper you might have earned ringgit, right? Actually you lost money uh, compared to if you had just whole sing dollar. Yeah, so so you, that is something to keep in mind uh, because like I think the movement against the Malaysian ringgit was north of 20 to 30%. Uh. So if you had purchased a property in Malaysia, uh, let's say for 1 million ringgit, right? Because the government also did mention that foreigners uh, in Malaysia, uh, especially Singaporean, uh, if you want to buy a property, their minimum purchase price 1 million. Yep. 
in JB, right? So so it's like number one, one million ringgit is quite a lot of money in Malaysia. You know, I think um, you know, for a foreigner to come in and put in one million is really a lot. Then in, then when you compound that with like already above market rate, right? Then you compound that with the fact that the Sing dollar like strengthened against the MYR, then you're talking about a, a minimum of one point three million uh, just for you to break even over thirty years. Uh, sorry, over like five to six years. So that is a pretty tall order, you know, because you have still you still have to include your renovation costs, you still have to include your legal fees, you still have to include your your all the 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 the, the hidden costs. Uh. Then once you calculate right, it can be as high as a break even cost of about one point four to one point five million ringgit. So even if the property price uh, rise uh, to one point five, and even if you still manage to liquidate that right, you calculate all this right, actually you don't make money at all. So when you like look at it right, like that's the main reason why. Uh, not just currency exchange rate, uh, but I would say that foreign ownership property rules uh, is also one of the main reasons right, why I don't own foreign property. Because I think right, for most people, right, the best place that you can buy property uh, is your passport uh, citizenship. Where you come from, I think that is the best place for you to buy property. Because essentially, um, you know, the government there cannot make laws, right, uh, I hopefully cannot make laws uh, to screw their own citizens, which is why personally I never buy uh, foreign real estate uh, in my own portfolio because I have seen, I have witnessed and I've uh, shown time and time again, right? That uh, if it push comes to shove, right? Generally, uh, the country will first protect their local residents. They will not protect foreign investors first, usually. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, so like, like as much as they say, like maybe Malaysian property is overvalued, you know, I would say that, um, you know, when you buy property, I would say that the first place that you need to buy is the, the country that you're from. Lah. Because I think it's quite difficult for you to go wrong if you buy a property in your own country which you know yeah provided that you pay a fair value as what Steph has mentioned definitely it's a big purchase and you really don't want to do it outside of a country that you're unfamiliar with it makes it even it makes it 10 times harder in a sense yeah like even if your own country is very tough already you go to another country you don't even like speak speak the language uh, don't speak the language you cannot control anything then you go over there like some blur like some blur uh, brother like that I tell you a bit tough like there's no real control it's not like equity where you can exit anytime in the liquid market you know like if you're not happy you can just exit because there's protocols to do it property considering that it's really immovable right like you would want to be in a place right where you have some sort of influence um and voting power la. so that's why i always say if you want to buy real estate it's better to start from home country first before you yeah. even think about going overseas all right i guess uh we let's move on to the next topic that we're going to talk about one that i'm really excited for um debt and interest rates so like we've been talking about like in malaysia the opr rates have been increasing and uh, everyone's going apeshit about it, you know, and uh, you start to hear stories about people uh, struggling to pay their, their home loans, their mortgages, and people worrying. And I believe, like, uh, not just on the property market, but also, like, uh, in the equity side of things, you know, people also are getting margin call and whatnot, and the interest rates, the Federal Reserve is just screwing everyone, um, taking back all the money they printed. So, uh, I'd just like, like to ask you, right, Aaron, how like the fixed and all these floating rates impact 
impact your your debt structure in both like the sense where you invest in equities and also uh, more importantly uh, property purchases. Okay, the the thing is right. This particular subject has always been a very huge contention issue amongst uh amongst like the personal finance space lah. Because like like I think for the longest time, right, a lot of old timers uh, who started in uh, who started buying property in twenty eight. 0809, right? They always like to sh- show and tell people and brag about the fact that they have made floating rates loans in the last like 15 years. Uh, and they say that floating loans, loans uh, will always be cheaper than a fixed rate. All right. And they are coming from a point of view, right? That this is like consensus in a time frame, right? Where in 2010, all the way in the last decade, right? That we have been very privileged uh, to be in a super low interest rate environment, right? So in a many in many ways, like how most people only know there's an up market, right? And in many ways, uh, most people thinking that floating rates will never exceed fixed rates. Uh, there's a bit of a speculation over there. La. I would say that if you have actually like gone and checked the historical like uh, interest rates, uh, even in Singapore, right, there are times where fixed rates, uh, which is basically the wholesale rate, you know, um, if you borrow from the Public Housing Development Board in Singapore, your fixed rate is only 2.6%. That's fixed for life. And they wow. rarely increase it. They, they don't increase it. In fact, the fixed mortgage rate in Singapore is 2.6%. Whereas uh, there have been instances uh, um, of my clients uh, who were much older, they, are, they, are, they come from the tech bubble crash, right? Where their interest rates are overnight, uh, floating, right? Instead of 2.6, uh, it went up all the way to 5 to 6%. Wow. Yeah. So don't take it for granted. Uh, that's all I can say. Like fixed, floating, end of the day, right? As what Steph uh, and we have mentioned in this podcast is that the best way, right, to look at debt and interest rate and how fixed and floating rates impact your structure is to do a sensitive interest rate analysis. This means do what Steph do, go online to your online calculator and then don't take it for granted that the lowest interest rate you see by your banker, 3.2% uh, is the best way. In fact, I would advise, I usually do what Steph do, which is to add one more percent. So instead of 3.2, try to do 4.2% and then see whether or not the affordability is still there for you in the long term. And then at what point uh, uh, will this interest rate right, start to like um, be very heavy for you? Lah? And usually I would argue it's around 2 to 3%. Uh, increase. I think 1% is still okay, but usually once it goes to like uh, 2-3% additional, then that's when you're going to start to see many people default. Because uh, people who are borrowing like 50-60% of their income, uh, two, two, uh, 1% still okay, but 2-3% you see them start eating grass already. <laughs> right? So, so like, you know, so like in that or that that and interest rates, right? As much as possible, even though my fixed interest rate in the short term tends to be more expensive than floating, I have always advocated as much as possible that I would very highly prefer to have fixed. Uh, and that has been consistent throughout my entire practice in my own personal finance. I tend to always go for fixed, even though I'm paying two percentage points higher because I'm playing the long game. If I'm going to buy a house, right, and I'm going to pay for 25 years, uh, how would I know if it's not going to go above 2.6? Uh, I don't know. Uh. Like today, you can tell me that the interest rate maybe at most is 1.5. Uh. Like Singapore, the mortgage rates, I think in 2020 was about 1.5, 1.6%. And they only fix it for three years. Uh. Do you know that banks in Singapore right now don't dare to even offer you fix? Banks in Singapore today, uh, they don't offer you fix. They, they don't dare. They offer you flow only. They, they don't dare to offer you fix. So the only like entity in Singapore that offers you fix is the, the housing development board, which is uh, tech at 2.6%. Uh. So it, it, it's a sign of, of what is going to happen uh, that you know everyone foresees that the interest rate is going to increase. Um, 
And then, you know, what happens when interest rate increase is that you will see like uh, asset prices come down because um, interest rates are like gravity to asset prices, right? That's what Warren Buffett likes to say. And then for every percentage increase in interest rates, uh, your multiple compression, you're talking about 10 to 20% down. Because assuming, let's say, uh, a company is trading at 30 PE, uh, your yield is 3%, correct? About 3.33%. If your interest rate goes up uh, by 1%, uh, then you're, you're basically, in order for you to match that 1% increase, uh, you're basically, uh, your entire valuation of the company has to fall by 20% in order to match that 1% increase. That's why you see like the equity market has been murdered, right? Because I, yeah. I mean, I did write about it in my article in the, the, the macro talk in my in my Instagram. I did say that you're going to see multiple compression and it's going to be very painful because every 1% to 2% increase of interest rate, you're going to see a multiple compression of about 10, 20, 30% drops, which actually did occur. So you ask me in the short term, is this going to continue? The likelihood is yes. Uh, I don't foresee it going any, off anytime soon. But at the same time, I will say that the best way for you to de-risk against this is to make sure that when you invest in an idea, it is a high growth one or you buy below market cost which is what Steph said, which is basically like two ways about it. Like you either go into a super high growth business or go into a super value growth business. Because the Steph, Steph, when she buy property, she like to buy below market cost. So that gives her some uh, buffer against like in case like valuations drop, right? Then basically yep. when you already buy below market cost, uh, then your borrowing already is a lot less compared to people who buy at a super high valuation. Correct. Whereas if you buy into a high growth stock, right, you can be saved by the high growth that the company has. Um, the best example I can give you is in the 1980s, right, where the percent, the interest rate back then was as high as 18%, one eight. So one eight. Yeah, 18%. The, the interest rate back then, uh, he raised it all the way to 18%. So corporate debt uh, borrowings, uh, the interest rate was close to like 20, 25%. Yeah, for one year. Yeah. So so if you wonder why interest rates uh, has been going down for the last 30 years, uh, it's because this this fella, right, this this Paul Volcker, uh, the, since, since 1980s, uh, he jacked up the interest rate to 18%. Uh, that's why bonds have been have been performing better than equities, right, in the last 50 years. Oh. All right. Because we went from 18% all the way to negative. All right. So, you ask me, right, whether or not we're going back to the 18%, I don't think so because I don't think we can afford it because last time 18%, right, the debt, the, the America, like the GDP, they only borrow about 30%. Today, they're above 100%. So there's no way on earth that we're ever going back to like 18% unless there's a black swan, uh, which I don't think will occur, right? So um, the best way, and during the, I will see, I will give you the best example of a high growth business uh, being able to like, outperform um, the, the interest rate, right? is none other than the company called Nike, right? Uh, Nike IPO in the 1980s just when interest rates were I think around uh, 18% and they actually outperformed the S&P 500 by about 3% so which is about 40% overperformance and the reason why they can outperform is because they were very high growth businesses that grew more than 50-60% every single year for the last uh, I think I think for the last like 30 years yeah then of course you need to learn how to pivot. La. So that it demonstrates a very good example of a very good investment uh, provided that the business can execute. So the best way to counter interest rates, right? You know, changing interest rates. Uh, number one is you, if you can uh, go for fix. If you can't go for fix, then the best way you can do it is to make sure that you either buy something which is growing very, very super fast. All right. Uh, I think Ryan and I have discussed at length at this that we like uh, crypto and we like Tesla. And the second way to best protect yourself against floating rate interest rate, right? And the structure is do what Steph do, which is to buy below market cost. Because that margin of safety, right, which comes from value investing, right, will, is what is going to save you, right, when um, valuations come down. Because if you already buy below market cost, right, the bank you will find it quite tough uh, to call and do margin call against you if the property market goes down. But if you buy above cost, 
if you buy above 20-30% above uh, market cost, right? And then assuming, let's say, the market were to come down, uh, your, debt does, your debt doesn't go away. Uh. That's what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, right? You borrow 900k, the valuation of the property gets cut into half. Uh. Your, value, your debt don't, cut, get, don't get cut into half. Uh. You still have to pay that. And then the bank will call you and ask you to top up. So, like, in terms of, like, property, right? There's really no uh, no, no way to actually say uh, you offer, um, you want to change your floating rate, uh loan to a fixed rate loan. So in the event where the interest rates like what's happening to Malaysia now, the OPR is going up, right, Stephanie? What do you think is like the the um better precautions to take to protect yourself and uh, ensure that you are able to continue um paying off the mortgage? Mm, to be honest, I, I have no solution for that actually. But for those who have yet to buy a home, I, I think it's good to consider renting if it's it's no longer affordable to buy a home. La. I find that uh, people are not missing out anything, if, even if they uh, choose to rent at the end, like shifting their priorities from buying to renting instead. I think there's really no harm to that. Um, as for those that are already in a mortgage, I think um, you can consider um, using a flexi uh, full flexi loan so that um, if you have any extra fund you can just uh, put it into your current account and really save on uh, interest rate paid to the bank in the long run right. yeah but it really stems from just good um, personal finance management in the end of the day right uh, and really make use of what the the banks are offering uh, really make use of the packages that they are offering actually just one, one question one quick question Steph uh, I, I like what you mentioned about how you say that there's no you're not really losing out on renting instead of buying. And why do you think that is? Actually, I I, I did a calculation myself comparing the oh, okay. buying. Maybe you can share that because I think our listeners would love to hear it. All right. So I think at the end of the day, whether you buy or rent, uh, you are not losing much provided that when you rent, you also continue to DCA in other type of investment like equities equities or crypto but if if on the other hand you only like you choose to only buy a property and then you know you don't dca into other investment then actually but the difference is that if you choose to buy the property in the end you get the property but if you choose to rent and then you still diligently go and invest um you still get pretty good uh return on your investment at the end of the 35 years for example so I really, that's why I, I would say that people are not missing out, even though you are renting. If you really calculate it, like if you really pull out an Excel and really do the calculation yourself, because um, to buy a property, you need to come up with upfront costs about 15 to 18%, at least in Malaysia. So in, for the rent case, you get to free up that kind of commitment, that kind of upfront cost, and you use it to invest, then you will definitely, it will definitely pay off lah. I feel the only thing you have to cough up when you rent is the down pay, uh, the 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 is it down payment? Uh? It's yeah, it's the a security deposit. Uh, yeah, the security deposit. That's right. Yeah, oh, but, usually but one or two months. Yes. But just to but just to elaborate on that, like, if you do Airbnb, there's no need for that. I, I didn't have to come out any security deposit when I rented this place. Yeah, there we go. Zero <laughs> deposit. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah and in fact, they I don't even have to cough up the full three months. They allow me to pay money. Wow. Yeah. So I, I don't even have to put security deposit. And even if they ask for security deposit, they also allow credit cards, which will not be charged. Mm, that's good. There's even like this call living concept in Malaysia getting more popular, like the Witopia by the company Witopia that allow people to rent as well without having to cough up like the security deposit. I think it's relatively a new thing. Like they call this uh there's like a insurance they buy where it secures the rental, in this case, the company, uh, Retopia, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, it enables the renters to not pay a, a security deposit. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, while uh, it's a risk for the people who rent, so they are protected by the insurance. I see. That's good to know. All right. Yeah, that was a very nice discussion around uh, the debt and uh, interest rates. I just want to make a comment that I actually love, like Steph's uh, comment about how you will not lose much um, if you actually like diligently invest. Because I think like, um, I think it's a real challenge, right? For most young couples uh, to actually uh, sit down and talk with their parents, right? Who usually love to insist uh, that no matter what they need to buy a house because i think this is a discussion uh, that is very common amongst asian families you know um western families i don't think the parents care that much you know but in terms of like, asian culture because we are so like family oriented right usually uh, when parents say something uh, usually as good confucius teaching uh, we try our best to like you know uh take that into account like you know even for myself, right? Even though I'm good at investing, uh, for the longest time, my mom has always been bugging me to buy a house, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house, which I always do not listen, <laughs> right? So I think uh, when Steph actually did mention, and considering that she comes from the property space, right, that uh, you don't lose much by renting, provided that you do your finance properly, right, really speaks uh, to, like, it really got to the core, right, that um, it, it should display to you and should explain to you, right, that, if you really do your personal finance uh well, that you know that the the advice are from parents that you know you should only buy a property. You should understand that that advice usually comes from a time right where investment knowledge is not as um it's not as uh wide as today. I think that's where it comes from. Because you have to understand, I think for most people, right, that during our parents' time, uh, we do not have like uh, personal finance channels, YouTubers, forums, uh, educating people about investing, you know, which is why, you know, when you talk about stocks and shares uh, with your parents, especially in Singapore, Malaysia, usually they talk about Bursa and they talk about STI. They don't talk about American companies. And actually, even for myself, I speak to so many like investors, uh, I've only met uh, about five or six people, right, who actually started investing in American equity all the way from 1980s and they did very well. But these are really uh, the very, very rare people uh, who in 1980 actually invested in the S&P 500. Most of them, I would say, invested in STI and Bursa stocks, which uh, from experience is not very good because local uh, equity markets are quite small. Uh, so the limit to growth is quite limited. So that has, you have to fund, I think, uh, when you discuss with your parents, right, you just have to make it known that times have changed, you know, and this, and we do live in a world of globalization. Yeah. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. All right. So on to the next topic. So we have talked about like, what is that in, in uh, depth? Well, that's a pun right there. But um, now let's talk a little bit about how to make debt work for you, make it a productive financial instrument so uh, maybe um stephanie do you uh aside from like taking uh mortgages in the property scene right how else do you think like someone can make 
um, that actually productive. Mm, like let's say for the property industry, right? I mean, people can can buy a house and then rent it out, and then when they rent out, they earn rental income, which is uh, which they can declare as additional income. So, uh, in return, they get to you know uh, borrow whether it's for another mortgage or uh, something else. So I find that that will help them, but provided they do declare and pay income tax for that to build their uh, uh, credit profile. I think that's very important. And that's what the WIS consultants to ensure that, you know, their uh, credibility is there and is being built so that they can take more and more and to build their business, for example. Uh, you build credibility and um, trustworthiness so that they can further take uh, more debt to actually grow their businesses and um, or invest somewhere else. Yes. All right. How about you, Aaron? How do you um, think like we can make that work for you? Okay, I always like to see this uh, question from a, a perspective of margin of error, which is what I've illustrated earlier in this uh, podcast, which is uh, if I if the, the debt instrument that I'm taking is, let's say, the, the, the interest rate is between 3 to 4%, right? And I'm borrowing it for, let's say, 10 years, uh, uh, essentially, I'm paying three to four percent annualized or every single year. Okay, then if let's say the investment idea I have, right? If let's say the maximum return I can get is only eight percent, that gives me a margin of error of only four percent. All right, which in my opinion is not enough for me to want to borrow money to execute on the investment idea, because. I can share from personal um, experience, right? During the COVID crash, uh, I had so many people uh, come up to me and ask, right, whether or not it's a good idea uh, for them uh, to borrow money to buy into investments uh, that only yield about 5%. And the borrowing cost was about 3%. All right. So, percent do, yeah. So, like, hey, look, you guys are borrowing like money at 3%. Uh, and the maximum that this thing can give you is only 5%. Uh, I said, Hey, your margin of error is only 2%. Eh. Like, what's the likelihood uh, that, you know, if this doesn't work or your interest rate just go up, uh, I say your your return is gone, right, you know. So there's not enough cushioning uh, for, um, uh, and it's, there's not just not enough cushion uh, for you to actually even consider that structure because it's a stupid structure, right? I mean, I mean, common sense will dictate, la, but for some reason, these uh, university graduates cannot do numbers. I, I find it disturbing, okay? Uh, anyway, besides that, um, um, anyway, besides that, right, I also say that um, the way I like to look at it is from a, from a business perspective, and that is if let's say my borrowing cost is about 3 to 4%, but if let's say the investment idea, right, uh, I average a return of let's say 30 to 40% per year, for the next 10 years, that gives me a super healthy margin. Uh, that even if it doesn't hit 30-40%, let's say I just take half, uh, okay, if it gets me 15%, right, and then my cost is only 3 to 4%, and if the structure is fixed, right, then I'll take that bet. Uh. It's no issue for me, right? Correct or not? Because I got a super healthy margin. You get what yeah. I mean? Yeah. You know, so so this is how the way I see like how to, to make that work for you. And that is when you take that debt, uh, there needs to be a super healthy margin, right? For you as the person who borrow money uh, to actually like make sure that if shit hits the fan, uh, that you have enough leeway uh, for you to get out as unscathed, right? And this is very problematic because the problem is that most people, when they borrow money, uh, they put money into very shitty amount of error. It's just not enough to cover like maximum loss. Uh. So it's, it's very similar to when you sell, when you do a business, right? When you when you want to bring a product to market, right? Like, like you want to bring a product to market, uh, Let's say you want to do drop shipping on Shopee. You bring a product to, let's say, Singapore or Malaysia, then you sell it on Shopee, right? Do you want to bring a product where the margin is like 10% or do you want to bring a product where the margin is 10x? At least a 10x, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, obviously oh, you will prefer to have prefer 10x. Obviously, the 10x margin uh, product most likely the the cost per unit is probably lesser la. It's probably like instead of like you know five hundred dollars for one unit, you probably have to sell ten times the volume la. But you know, in many cases, this is what I mean by having a margin of error. You know, when you borrow money, you need to come. You need to come from a perspective uh, that you are borrowing money, and you have to treat yourself like a business, and that and you have to make sure there's enough margin and cushioning, right? In case our uh, shit hits the fan, and I think I find it very disturbing, right? That uh, in the 2020, like COVID crash, uh, you know, so many youngsters, I'm uh, not talking about people in their 30s, you know, talking about people in like, like the early to mid 20s, they just started their first career, they're just happy, happy, get their first paycheck, work for one, two years, then you know, the tech boom, uh, a lot of them make like, uh, they make good money. Uh, so it's like, it's very disturbing for me to see all these young people come up to me and then present to me amazingly shitty ideas. Uh, <laughs> where the margin of error is, is so thin or even worse uh, even if let's say uh, the margin of error is considered big right? but when you look at the the, 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 the structure of the idea it's, it's fundamentally flawed you know like I give the, the very good example is the Luna and Terra nobody like actually factored no one factored in uh, that there was a potential for it to go to zero you know yeah absolutely nobody actually like you know like, like you know you, you know me and you know Ryan you and me uh, for the longest time where we're talking about DeFi right in our channels we have already like excessively told everyone right that there is a percent there is a small chance that this that the DeFi project that you invest in can go to zero I think we have made it very very explicit you know and then we get attacked and slammed for it yeah yeah <laughs> so it's like you know guys what, what you want us to do like <laughs> like like we say this cannot we don't say anything also cannot so when like I mean you get what I mean la. so it's like um, you know when you don't borrow money right and you invest like cash uh, and then you lose money. Uh, it's all, I will say that it's okay because you just lose money. You know, you can unpack. But what is very tough, right, is that when you borrow money uh, and then you invest into things, right, where, you know, um, fundamentally, you know, it is a flawed investment and there lies the very thin silver lining because most people get confused uh, between investing and gambling. Mm. Right. And that is something uh, that I think most people really need to take a step back. Uh, and before they borrow huge sums of money, right, to take a step back uh, and ask themselves uh, whether or not they're gambling or whether or not they're investing. Because investing, right, is you coming from a perspective uh, where Steph has already described, she knows her numbers, she knows her market, she knows her competitors, and she can foresee 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whether or not what are the pitfalls, what are the ups and what are the downs, what are the sideways markets. She can see all that because she has done her due diligence. Gambling, on the other hand, is basically when Lumbo syndrome. Yeah, Lumbo when. Yeah, and then whenever you throw like questions like whether or not this can can work or things like that, uh, basically they just say or oh, fuck, you know, which is not a very good answer, la, I would say. So um fundamentally, how do you make that work for you? Have a very healthy margin when you borrow money. You know, either you buy below market cost or make sure that the margin uh, of the interest rate right is, is so big uh, that even if let's say your projected like return uh, gets cut in half right it still can cover that 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 that, that interest that you borrow in uh. and most importantly uh, most importantly when you borrow debt right especially if it's a collateral debt uh, um especially like like crypto right they this this stupid like uh online exchanges like to offer you uh, like like Steph you mentioned it's like 90% loan right in crypto uh, you don't borrow 90% you can borrow up to 50, uh, 100 times your your capital wow so it's yeah. like you put $1, uh, you know, you can borrow up to $100, you know. 
Yes. You put in one dollar, you can borrow up to hundred dollars. So it's like all it needs, right? It's just one percent drop. Your entire capital gets wiped out. And and as you know, crypto move up and down. One percent is like basically five minutes, like uh five minutes like uh action. So it all stems back from as what Ryan likes to mention is good financial prudency. You know, you need to really step back, do the interest rate analysis, which I really find that most people just uh, don't do, you know, and then also make sure that you have a healthy margin um, of cushioning or uh, to make sure that even if shit hits the, the, the ceiling, right, you can afford the debt and make sure that you don't uh, overextend. Uh. Yeah, that's the key thing. All right. And uh, okay, sorry, the last one, uh, the last one I forgot to mention. Uh, if you're very scared and that and it's your first time taking on debt, right, I would say just start small. Don't start so big. Yeah, start start very small. Like start maybe like, you know, you can start a small credit card, like maybe 500 ringgit a month or 500 sing a month, something that's manageable. Then once you get the hang of it, once you're very comfortable, right, then you can start to scale up your debt higher and higher. But that, that's how I would do it. Like, because, um, you know, it's not very wise for most people to get into such a huge debt position, right, without first understanding the fundamentals of debt. So you can start small. Don't have to start so big. Start small first. All right. Yeah, it's just a, a matter of getting used to uh, managing uh, your cash flow in a sense because with debt, right, uh, you do have to pay off and then you do have to factor in like next month, do I have enough money to actually pay off the credit card loan or not? Looking back at like how, why my father actually pushed me into buying a car uh, with a higher purchase loan, right? it was actually to build um, a habit of like managing my cash flow which I look back now, it was a good lesson, but a painful one. But now nowadays, I do manage my credit card debt uh, and my high purchase loan debt and everything quite effectively. You know, I, I do have like a couple of like credit card loan debts going on. And yeah, you know, you just have to have like all these numbers in your head and like be prepared to pay for it next month. But uh, but I would say like credit card debt and like high purchase loan or fixed rate loans, right? These are generally more simple loans where you don't have to factor in the interest rates and all. For for like the mortgage loans and all, it will be next level where you have to start thinking about like um, sensitivity analysis where you have to take into account whether your interest rates are going to go up or not. And if it is, then how much would it need to go up before you start to fail to pay your debt? And that would actually create a pretty bad track record um, down the road. Oh, so I would just like to ask you guys, right, um, to create a good track record um, uh, with your debts, um, how do you actually want to do it? Or rather, like, the question, the topic that we're going to go into is, like, creating a good track record to draw down debt. So maybe, like, uh, Aaron, you might want to, like, just start, uh, start rolling the ball here. Um, as what Steph has mentioned consistently in her channel, guys, pay your taxes. Yeah, like, I think Steph, uh, Stephanie mentioned that just now, right? Like hire like a good tax consultant to do it, you know, build the credibility. Yeah, like I, I think what I like about Stephanie is that she always consistently always like gives out the message uh, that it is very important for most people to be honest about their tax filings, you know, because um, I think that as a, capitalist uh, and as a business person right it is very important uh, that you pay your due taxes in due like don't try and cheat the system don't try and circumvent the system you can make the taxation efficient but actually if you if you actually like zoom out and look at the bigger picture right most of the time uh, the people who are the best position uh, to take advantage of the financial system uh, are the people who always pay their taxes in the in the most transparent ways uh, way possible so 
I would say that the fundamental principle that most uh, you know, people must have is that just pay your taxes. Because honestly, if you pay your taxes, uh, basically you're, you're you know, displaying your income for them to see, right? So, and then if it's very consistent and then you're growing your income, the likelihood that the banks will allow you to borrow money you know, because you have displayed consistent like income, right? And usually uh, when they want to lend you money, uh, the first thing that they always ask, very simple, can you please show me your tax return, right? Because you can show them payslip, you can show them monthly payslip, you can show them yearly payslip. But the most credible source of income uh, that a bank can get, right, is show me your income tax. Because when you show, when you do an income tax, uh, it is very hard for you to run away, right? How much you declare your income. So I think a lot of people, right, are usually missing the big picture when they want to reduce their income tax. And that is, I want to pay as little as possible, which is quite stupid in my opinion, because honestly, if you want to really like grow and build your wealth, uh, you, you will do it a lot better with the bank's help. And the way that the bank can help you is that you be honest about your tax filing and just pay your, your share of the tax, uh, which I think um, personally... I have advocated that I think in my entire like business career and that is, you know, it's best that you just pay your taxes, you know, have a very good track record on making sure that uh, you file your taxes due, uh, you know, properly. And if you need a tax consultant, hire one because they will make sure that they can display your finances the best so that when you walk up to a bank right, and a bank asks for documentation, you have it and you have a track record of showing that you have reliable, that you basically have your shit together lah you know, end of the day. And of course, like building credit uh, by itself, once you have showcased that you have income, right, through uh, reliable sources, then usually the bank will start to give you credit facility. And the use, the first credit facility that uh, most people want to have is their credit card. So um, generally, um, once you have a credit card, then you have displayed that you're allowed, you're able to use your credit card reliably. All right. And then the next thing you go is a personal loan. Right. Then after your personal loan, you know, and you have demonstrated that you know how to manage it properly, right? Then generally, once your income starts to go higher and higher, then you'll be in the sophisticated investor or high net worth individual level. Then once you reach that level, right, uh, then basically the options are for borrowing opens up even more because then you have, uh, you basically have options for sophisticated um, structures, uh, which opens up to you. Yeah. Banks are a lot, put it this way, uh, guys, if you want to build a very credit, credible like credit rating, right, pay your taxes and make sure that you don't otang people and don't run away from creditors. End of the day, um, banks, they like to work with people who are honest about their finances. So the more honest you are, the better for you, you know, and I believe that is the best way to go around it. Uh. All right. Uh, I guess I'll just also pass the mic over to uh, Stephanie to ask, like, aside from like uh, building credibility through paying taxes that uh, you mentioned just now, uh, is there any other way to actually build like a good track record of like, you know, your credit scores and also um, the, the integrity or the credibility of a person through um, debt, mortgages or any other way? Uh, because in Malaysia, the bank will usually look at your secrets, uh, which is the uh, credit information uh, collection by the uh, uh, Bank Negara Malaysia. La. So um, I think that's very important is to not miss your monthly repayment, even including your PTPTN or even your, uh, even your mobile phone bills as well. So I think um, you can automate payment to be a better paymaster. Yeah, so and um, other than that, I think it's to up your income as well because as you up your income, uh, you also appear to be, you also get to be a better uh, credit profile, uh, a person with better credit profile in the eyes of the bank uh, or financial institution. Mm, right. So 
it, just to sum it up, right, it's to pay your taxes. It's um, to utilize uh, those credit systems like your credit card, um, debt, but do pay your um, installments, your mortgages on time. Don't miss a payment. And finally, just to increase your income overall so you become a uh, more um, highly accredited uh, person in the eyes of financial institutions. All right. Thanks for sharing, guys. Um, we've covered mostly what we wanted to talk about today. For the final section of the podcast, let's move on to the Q&A section. Uh, the first question, I think it was, I believe it was uh, from Stephanie, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so uh, this uh, question um, is, where are we heading to? If that continues to rise and property prices keeps going up, so maybe like you want to like expand a little bit on this question before we answer, uh, Stephanie. Yeah, I I mean because being in the property industry, right? I I really do see or like feel worried, like, especially for the younger generation. If it continues, if the property price continues to rise, like what will happen? And also, be- as people take on more and more debts, because maybe they do not know about the implications of that and that, you know, yeah, you, you get cash back and stuff like that. But there surely is uh, an end to it. There surely is some consequences. That's why I wanted to get some uh, input or opinions from you guys uh, where you see this going to. Uh. I think I can just give like a, like a speculative input, but I'm, uh, I'm not entirely sure what I'm about to say is true or not. Because it sounds like I'm channeling my inner Michael Burry. But uh, I hate to do this, but I feel like when people are, when the property market is kind of like propped up by credit, right? Majority. Like uh, if you take a look at Clan Valley, a lot of them are like ghost townships, ghost um, office towers that I mentioned. The occupancy rate is so bad. And I'm just not sure where all the money is coming from. So probably it's all coming from the bank. Well, what happens one day if the bank fails? It's going to be like a 0809 crisis. And as all this, uh, if it even if it doesn't happen, right, which is uh, good in a sense that it doesn't cripple the economy, it's still bad for the people who want to buy or like the millennials in general who wants to buy homes for the sake of staying in them. It becomes unaffordable to the point you have to um, rent. But what happens when everyone is forced to rent? Rentals will go up and it's just an endless uh, downward spiral uh, that I see, you know. Uh, Aaron, maybe you want like, to like chime in? Um, there's a saying in the investment world, right, that when the tide goes down, you'll see who's swimming naked. <laughs> um, to, to basically like, to give you a very good example, I hate to use the same example over and over again, and that is to look at the, the Luna Terra crash that occurred uh, last week. Um, you realize that there were many people, right, who actually invested money that wasn't theirs into a project which was um, speculative, right? And usually, uh, um, from my experience um, in reading, um, you know, many books about investing, I read, I'm like, like freaking nerd when it comes to like investment history, lah. You know, I've read uh, all the way from the 1800s, 1900s, the year 2000. Usually when um, housing becomes to a level, right, where it is unaffordable and people cannot buy houses, uh, two things usually happen. Either uh, the income is artificially depressed or the houses are artificially high. So 
one thing has got to give is either the income needs to go up or the property price will probably sideline and go sideways for a prolonged period of time. All right. Um, I would say that, you know, if people are feeling the pain, then what will usually happen is that people will start to rent instead of buy because it's no longer a question of whether I which is better, but a question of whether or not I can even afford it. And if people cannot afford to buy a flat, right, uh, then they'll just rent. Uh. I mean, end of the day, that is the only solution, the only option they have. Uh. So supply demand will come and kick in, right? Then the question is how much, how long can this like musical chairs continue before something uh, gives out? Uh. So um, unfortunately, I'm not in the property market in Malaysia for me to make a very like reasonable assessment. But my assessment in Singapore is that I don't think it's an overinflated bubble yet um, because our government is very good at making sure that they remove the pressure away from the prices so that it doesn't become unaffordable, right? But I will say that um, as a person who has jumped across cities in Southeast Asia, you know, I can completely relate to what Ryan mentioned about ghost towns. Because talking about ghost towns, uh, this is exactly right what happened uh, to China this year for Evergrande. Because they realized that the house of cards start falling down. And overnight, right, people who purchase property are hoping that property will completed will be complete in five years. I realized right that they overpaid for the house and the house delivery might might take more than five years to come. And they throw in two to three generations of wealth in that one house. And if something like that can happen to a country uh, where a GDP is $18 trillion, uh, you don't talk about countries which are smaller. That's all I'm saying. If a country of that size, of that magnitude, uh, can see, you can see such a huge uh, deflation uh, happen so quickly uh, in a matter of months, uh, don't even talk about smaller countries. Right. This is not the first time uh, that Southeast Asia has seen such massive deflationary um, um, asset bubble because we did go through one in 1997, 1998, you know, 1999, where you see uh, in Southeast Asia, right, the Singapore stock market, I think, fell by 80 to 90 percent. Your bursa fell by 90 percent. Uh, your currency got half by 50 percent. Indonesia, uh, the stock market fell by 95%. You know, their currency also fell by 80-90%. So whatever happened in Russia during the Ukraine crisis, right, actually occurred in every single country in Southeast Asia, including Singapore. So all I can say is, how do you best defend yourself against uh, this type of things? Lah, you know, end of the day, it comes back down to make sure that whatever you buy, buy within your means. And make sure that you buy at a value which is fair to you and try your best uh, not to overpay. Because end of the day, right, whether or not this becomes manageable always stems from the fact that it needs to be manageable in size. I always say it's better to buy something within your means uh, than to overstretch and then realize later, even if if the property drops by 50%, you still owe uh, the other remaining 50%. Be prudent, uh, that's what I'm saying. So, and also, um, like, I want to chime in, right? like, never ever factor in your future cash flow uh, growth uh, into, into, into your analysis. Like, whatever you earn now, is uh, is, is uh, how much you can, you, it's better just to make your analysis based on um, whatever you can pay now. Because naturally, yes, everyone would have their salaries increase and all. But what happens if you lose your job tomorrow? You're not able to pay or you have to take a pay cut like everyone during COVID, you know, 20, 30% pay cuts. So there, it was a difficult time for everyone. Uh, some, some, um, 
weren't able to pay out their their housing um mortgages. But fortunately, our government uh did have like a uh loan memorandum. But uh, I'm not even sure if I pronounce it correctly. But uh, there's like a moratorium that uh everyone stop paying their loans for six months, which was great. Uh, but um, in the end of the day, you still have to pay your debt and just never ever do your analysis based on your future salary or whatever um, projections you think your salary growth would be or how much you would earn in the future. Because or uh, what truly matters is what you can pay now. Yep. And I would like to chime in as well because I've also read about news uh, like how, how Singapore is so well regulated that there's no such thing as markup or cashback in the property scene. And because um, there was a case that one developer actually did that in Singapore and it was brought to case. Uh, sorry, it was brought to court. So um, that actually shows how prudent uh, the Singapore uh, government is as compared to the Malaysia one. So I really want to like let people know that to um to be very careful with cashback because cashback um in the end of the day it's being paid by the buyer not the developer and it actually really kind of affect the overall market value and really makes it uh make the property market so much more if so much even more not transparent meaning to say when a developer push up the value artificially then the JPPH, which is the our valuation property services department, the government one, um, they will really find it hard to gauge the real price of the property in the area. As for property, right, uh, really don't buy into a property because of the uh, cashback. Because I'm seeing, you know, there's cashback uh, promotion, although not being um, promoted out, but but being done more like backdoor. But um, really, to I want to get like buyer to really consider uh, before making that decision because uh, in the end, they, they will have to pay for the cashback no matter how uh, tempting it is. Uh, because um, at the end of the day, if they buy a inflated artificially inflated price property, it will even make it harder for like the valuation and property services department of Malaysia to really determine the real value of the property, uh, especially like in specific areas. So and then the price will will be continue being pushed up until making you know the the market eventually become unaffordable for so many people and so it will be continuously being manipulated and um create this artificial increase in price lah. But then because of the willing buyer willing seller scenario, so um it's it continues to goes up and up lah. So I find that people need to be aware of the consequences. Um. Well, that's that's very interesting. It sounds like the market's like super inefficient in the sense that the yeah, because, prices yeah, just keep going up. Because eventually, right, the JPPH, which is the Valuation and Property Services Department, they will base on the last transacted price, which is on the sales and purchase agreement. They won't know whether it's manipulated or not. Only the buyer know, only the seller know. So they will eventually based on that to determine, okay, so this is the current market value of that area. For example, so it will continue be up and up well, if it's artificially being inflated. Yeah. yeah. So there's a consequences that I see that people are not aware of. They are just thinking, oh, I get cash back. I got extra cash. But not knowing, actually, there's a bigger consequences for that as well. Lah. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely a red flag there that um not many people actually talk about. So thank you for sharing this today, Stephanie. Oh, we were just talking about it. like yeah, uh, me and Eric we were just talking like uh like all these things right. You don't you if you are not like in the property scene, you just don't know. And and mm. like when you know about it, it's just so scary to yeah. even think about it. Yeah. So yeah, if you are in the industry, you will be more careful with the whatever marketing uh thing that people do lah in the industry definitely that's a good one to watch out for yeah all right next on to the next question so this one's uh, an interesting one um how to avoid um housing loan debt mm-hmm. i mean if you buy a house there's 95 uh, 99.5 that you're gonna take a mortgage it's kind of unaffordable so i would say instead of like how to avoid a housing loan it's better to be like uh prudent in when uh, taking on uh, a mortgage. Would you agree with that, Aaron? Uh, the only way to avoid a housing loan is to either pay cash or you just rent. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Definitely. These are the only. Yeah. These are really like the only two ways to do it. And if you can afford to pay cash, the likelihood that you don't want to take that is quite low, lah. I would say because I think we have already explained the podcast. I think for most people who can afford to pay hundred percent down, I think you are in a financial position uh, to negotiate very very hard with your banker to make sure that you get a damn good rate because mm. the banker know you can pay. So if yeah. the banker know you can pay and you have cash to pay, then the likelihood that they give you a very good deal is very high because you probably belong to high net worth or sophisticated investor, right? So, and then like the, the other side of the equation, uh, which also ties back to the question of what will happen if the, the, the property price and rental becomes unaffordable, um, I would say that eventually what's going to happen is that people vote with their feet, essentially. Like eventually, if let's say, right, that the, 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 the opportunities are not there for you to live in a sustainable way, then eventually people will move out of the country and you will see brain drain, right? Because assume, let, let's say uh, like your property is really super unaffordable. People really cannot, it's literally hand to mouth. People cannot afford anything. Then there's lack of opportunity in the area for you to be able to live a standard of living. If people will move, if people can move and get a better standard of living elsewhere, they will do so, right? So in many ways, um, I would say that one of the benefits about renting, right, is that you don't actually tie yourself to one location. You can actually go anywhere around the world provided that you have good visas and good uh, relocation opportunities, right? Where you're able to also arbitrage on the geographical location, you know? So um, coming back to the question, like uh, how do you avoid housing loan debt? I guess it's really more of a lifestyle question you have to ask yourself. Are you the type of person who prefers to stay in one area for the rest of your life? Or are you the type of person who prefers to rotate in and out states, cities, countries for the rest of your life? Because if you're a person who prefers to stay in one location, then sometimes it makes sense for you to have a housing loan debt, right? But if you're a person like me, who likes to like go to multiple cities, you know, in my lifetime, right? I think that taking a housing loan debt should only usually, should only come if I intend to have a family, I intend to root somewhere. Yeah, because when you buy a house, you're basically like um, putting yourself up in a place to stay lah. So you have to answer that question. So these are really like the only two ways. Like it's either you pay out 100% cash, which in most cases, I don't think that's what you will do. Eventually, you're still going to have a housing loan debt. Then the other one is a lifestyle question of whether or not you prefer to rent. Yeah? How about you, Steph? Mm, I would say to make use of the, the bank uh, the bank packages, you know, find something that will work for you. Like uh, for me, example, I'm, tra- I'm, I'm, I'm using the flexi loan. Uh, so 
uh, and I I can see that you know this this uh using of uh, flexi loan is is picking up uh, especially among millennials that are more and more you know uh, uh financially literate. So I find can you may want to explore on that. And yeah, I mean, if really you want to avoid housing debt and you want to choose to not have it at all and to rent instead, I really find there's no harm in doing that. Lah. Because I've also done the calculation myself and to show myself, actually, renting is not that bad. Lah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what's, what's, what, where, where does the shame come from renting? I don't understand. Like, like, you rent, you can invest in equities. That's cool and all. But what's yeah. the, the nicer part also is like, you can also move houses every two, uh, two or three years, you know. Once your tenant is up, you don't want to live. You feel like the place you're living is a shithole. And uh, you can move somewhere else, move to a new neighborhood, the nicer neighborhood, you know. Uh, there's the flexibility there. But whereas if you go into a, a housing loan, then you're stuck with the same home. If it's like a shit home, then you're stuck with the shit home for like the rest of your life. Yeah. Until you oh, actually sell it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I it's really uncommon. It's not uncommon to to see really um like wealthy people that they are actually living in a rented home as well. It's really not uncommon. So I really find it, there's no shame with renting, uh, to be honest. Yeah, I guess we we we, we need to start a motion uh, to throw away this uh idea that you need to own a house and not owning a house is sh- uh, shameful. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, like, like we always go back to the, the key fundamental principle. Uh, owning a house is really just an insurance policy, right? To ensure that in 25 years, you don't have to pay rent, right? Oh. Basically, you just front load your, your rental of in your retirement uh, towards 25 years, you know, then and basically it's really an insurance policy if you think about it, right? So, like, I don't think that people should be feel ashamed if they rent because um, I think Personally, I've always been a big believer in renting. I don't really like to buy homes because uh, it's not my game and cup of tea. But I will not discount it if I intend to have kids. Because I think sometimes um, you also need to put some value into the, the, the ownership. If, if let's say I intend to have like three or five kids, right? I want three or five kids. Uh, I think it makes sense for me to own a home. Because I think if I want to consistently shift house, uh, especially when I have like three to five kids, right? I think it's going to be tough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, I think it's gonna yeah, be very true. very tough. Uh, if I have like three kids, three to five kids, uh, like then each of them every time I relocate, uh, then they have to change school, they have to change education system, you know, then it's it's gonna be very tough for the family. Uh. So like if you intend to like settle now and have kids, right, then I think it's okay if you're just a couple don't have like, kids now. Uh, but once you once you have kids, right, I think the the thought process all right of wanting to root down is basically out of like um convenience and also time. So so like um, yeah, la. so I think you have to keep that in mind la. because different people, right, they have different like uh, perspectives when it comes to like um, buying and renting. La. You know, you know, in your early, mid, late and early 30s, la, you might think that renting is the way to go. But from my experience, what I've learned is that as people start to age, uh, their perspective can change because the needs in their life changes, right? They might not want to have kids in their 20s, uh, but maybe in their mid-30s, they have baby fever, then how, right? Then your, your needs change already, right? Then you'll start to think of like dif- of, of different reasons why property would make sense because um, if you have kids and then if your kids need to go to school, right, then you know, it makes sense for you to root in one particular area. La. So the, the cost that you pay, right, it's not just on the, the investment return that you get and the H that you get, but also out of the time savings which you can get if you root yourself to one particular place. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, like, for me, I would say for property, right, I would 
tend to look at it as um, buying a property out of needs to serve the the need to actually have a roof over your head. And like some people, it's a goal in life, which I don't think it's a bad thing. Like having a dream home to relax and unwind is actually a very nice thing also. Um, and it feels a lot different when uh, you know you own the place and there's this sense of success that uh, you actually paid for the place and built the built your dream home i i won't dispute that you know that that's that's if that's your life going that's a hundred percent respectable one that i i will respect uh but in the sense that if it's like uh for investments uh i would kind of like argue that it's a bit of an inefficient uh i mean uh no offense but like i i do think it's like a bit inefficient compared to uh, crypto and stocks but yeah you know you do you uh if it's like part of your circle of competence then just go ahead you know? i think i think the key thing is also the amount that you need to put up lah for property mm. it's, it's really like the the only way you can do it is really like high like leveraging right because like the amount of money that you need uh, to start in property is quite high you you cannot dispute that the the amount the outlay is high and not only that right that puts you in a position of vulnerability because if you're talking about like putting up such a huge debt amount and then it takes like 30% of a cash flow, then it starts to limit your options uh, in what else you can do with your money. Definitely. It trims away yeah. a lot of your cash flow. Maybe you could spend like a lot more on um, groceries compared to like uh, when you're renting compared to when you're actually uh, paying for a mortgage or you need to save up for the amount of like down payment that you're going to make the initial 10%. Yeah, you know, it's all it's all uh just boils back down to just good uh personal finance and whether it actually serves your needs or not. But like what Aaron said, your priorities will change in your thirties. If you have a kid, you know, it's it it might be something on the plate where you want to buy a place, settle down, have kids where they attend a school at the same area, you know. But um yeah, you know, I just still don't think uh from uh investing perspective it's 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 a feasible one if that makes sense but that's just me no offense to anyone else okay, yeah, next I, one is oh, sorry Steph. no no i mean i actually get uh where ryan is going on uh, because sometimes when we take on debts like for example for property investment um the the rental that we we make the that we earn may not be able to cover the monthly installment so that's where one thing that we need to consider there is such possibilities that uh, so yeah that's why i wouldn't disagree that you know um property investment may not be the best investment and to to remain open-minded to other types of investment as well yeah coming back and shooting myself i should also be more open-minded uh, for property i won't dispute that there's alpha there so but it's just not uh my circle of confidence that's why you know yeah. uh yeah anyway on to the next question so if interest rates are all going up do i take a mortgage loan now or later Maybe, right. uh, Steph, you want to like, talk a little bit about this? Uh, how should I go with this? Um, for me, um, in my opinion, I think it's to it's to get now if possible. Uh, why? Because I, I'm looking at the property market uh, clock, the property clock. So we are at the bottom coming up now. So what I wouldn't encourage people to do is to buy at the top of the market. But since we are still at quite at the bottom now before it it gets back up if you really need to buy a house i would i would say um you know really consider the options you have now um instead of later because why uh, i and another reason is because me coming from uh, 
uh, property development background as well. Um, I see uh, construction costs being increased a lot and developers are under are going through pressures to increase price. Okay, so there's no way that they can reduce price when the cost is increasing 20%, 30%, and even 50% because of the labor shortage as well, as well as like the steel price going up and the construction materials. So it's really hard to say, and it's better not to time the market as well, uh, because based on trend, we are still like at the bottom, but coming back up soon or even now. So I think it's good to take the opportunity, let's say, if you really need to buy a house now. Yeah, yeah I would like to say that, uh, like, like I really like what uh, Stephanie mentioned just now. Do, don't try to time the market. For any investment, really, uh, I would say if you want to buy, the best time is probably now. That's like a very famous quote from uh, Warren Buffett as well. Because, uh, yeah, you know, just you don't, you don't time the market uh, because you still need to do your whole quote. You still need to find your undervalued property or in the case of like um, equities, you know, you uh, you still need to do your valuations and stuff like that. And um, in the end of the day, you're invested only when you put your money down, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, Aaron, you got anything to uh, add in? I think um, Stephanie is the best person to answer this in terms of now or later because she's inside the, the, the field, right? And I like that she actually comes across from a perspective that construction costs are going up, you know? Because uh, usually um, that kind of tells me that underlying the fundamentals means that th- this, pi- this price increase is due to construction costs going up and not um, credit going up. You get what I mean? If if that makes sense, because if 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 the price increase is due to basically like leverage leverage, right? Then usually it's not sustainable, especially with the interest rate increase. But if it's due to material cost going up by twenty to thirty percent, then I would say that um you know you just need to be prudent in the purchase price that you pay lah. And also I like that actually what Steph really comes home with right is that you're buying it because you need it and a utility and something which you have been looking for in a long time right if you've been looking for a property for a while then actually to be honest (coughs) property up property down you know so long as you keep to the key tenants like what we mentioned on podcast right 30 percent of your income cash flow uh assess the market place and make sure you try to get fair value the best is below market price and be open to like sub sale if you want if you can uh, because like as what she has mentioned there's value in there and the way that i see property is i don't usually see it as a growth play but more of a value play meaning you try to you know if you want to have uh, the biggest cost savings ever try to get it as cheap as possible you know because there will be buyers who unfortunately they had to let go properties at a cheap price now so i think like unfortunately this is the game of like value investing like you have to look for distressed um sellers then then you basically like buy the property for cheap you know because um unfortunately this is how the game is played so in terms of buying now or later i would say that in every single market up down left right there's always people who make money right in a market crash a lot of hedge funds they make three triple digit returns in a market upswing there's also uh, funds who make a lot of money and likewise there's many uh, funds who also lose money in uh, up market and funds that uh, lose a lot of money in a down market so i think end of the day what it really stems back down right is uh, due diligence and also uh, time in the market because essentially you know if you try to time the market you just need to understand that um, time in the market only really matters i think in the short term about three six months maybe one year but if you actually like really zoom out 
and you look at uh, time frames of like 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years, right? What you're going to realize, the main reason why markets in general and asset price go up is quite simple. And that ties back to our first episode of this podcast called The Fiat Standard. And that is currencies through time and space are just very terrible places uh, to hold value using cash, you know. Uh, in Singapore, we see inflation. In Malaysia, we see inflation. And I can say over the years, uh, what I've noticed and what I've realized is that the market is just designed to go up. La, because um, unfortunately, uh, people work better in an inflationary environment because it forces people to spend money. Because if you are in a deflationary environment, la, then you basically, the the same scenario is you look in Japan, that's what you're going to get. Basically, for the last like um, 20, 30 years, right, you realize that the country has not changed much because of the spectacular crash and they basically just become hermit mode for like 20, 30 years. Right. So I think like observing many like scenarios and like macro environments, I've just come to the realization that inflationary environment is tend to be the better solution, you know, over historical basis. And the best way that you can counter inflationary um environments, right, is to basically make sure that you put your money to work as actively as you can at a risk profile and a risk uh, tolerance, right, which appeals to you, be it in equities, be it in crypto, be it in real estate. Essentially, try not to hold cash lah, beyond your emergency fund requirements. As much as possible, you will want to utilize cash because uh, that is the best way that you can get to get the return. Because essentially, if you look at very rich people and very wealthy individuals and businessmen, what are they very good at? They are very good at deploying capital. And that is what personal finance is. Personal finance essentially is learning how to deploy capital against your other opponent, which is inflation. If you're able to get, if you're able to get good at deploying capital with the help of that, then I think uh, in most cases, you will do quite well. All right. So before we end the session, um, do we have any like uh, closing remarks, Stephanie? Mm, well, when it comes to property, um, it can be a you can make a data driven decision as well when it comes to property, whether you're buying for your own state or for investment. so yeah, use that and don't be don't don't make a impulsive decision. And yeah, <laughs> I think that's all for me. All right. Aaron, how about you? Uh, definitely follow Steffi Kondo um, on her Instagram. <laughs> That's all I can say <laughs> because uh, amongst my many years of like um, looking at property, right, I think she's one of the rare few who actually really does come across as a very balanced view when it comes to property. La. Because um, essentially, I always look for, um, you know, professionals, good professionals are hard to find, I, f- I feel, in many areas, you know. Um, and sometimes when you find a person who's very balanced in the way of uh, doing things right, then I think that um, you would want the person's influence because you can ask their, their views. Uh, and I think Stephanie is, Stephanie is one of them because I do like her views in terms of the property market. Yeah, that's why we have her in the podcast today. Um, and also for my end, I guess, um, look, learn how to manage that, learn how to use it wisely and learn how to utilize the 50% of your balance sheet. Because if you do it well, right, generally you will be better off than people who actually 100% stay away from that. So I think it's best that people learn how to get comfortable with it instead of avoiding it completely. Awesome. So um, for me, uh, again, I 
echo um Aaron's uh, views on like uh, how Stephanie uh, Stephanie has like a very balanced view on like property itself. I see that she comes from like uh, a point of view where she does take into account data and that there's always very data driven decisions uh coming from her account. So do go follow her account at Steffi Condo at Instagram which I can say her content is very, very valuable to the property investor. And also in terms of like that, I would say like try to understand it. Don't let it be something, uh, don't let it be a financial instrument that you don't understand because it is uh, whatever you're in, equities, crypto, property, it's going to be a huge part of uh, the market. Uh, even if you're not buying property, you are still somewhat connected to debt, you know, like uh, we 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 haven't even really touched on like national debts, like GDP, that kind of stuff today. But it is all interconnected, and it's something that should be understood and not feared. And also, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us today. We really enjoyed the session. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you so thanks, much, Steph. both of you as well, Aaron and Ryan. Yeah, and also like uh, also like thank you, Aaron, for the masterclass on like uh, depth because uh, like right before we started the the the, the podcast, I was saying today is going to be like a masterclass on depth. <laughs> yeah. it is, it is, it is. But yes. uh, yeah, until the next episode, um, thanks for tuning in and invest safe, friends. See you.